This episode is brought to you by the Switcheroo, the only RGB to SCART cable that allows you to quickly change between composite artifact mode and RGB with the flip of a switch. Find out more about the Switcheroo at Coco3SCARTCable.com. All right, guys, are you ready to get this show so on the road? We're going to do this almost on time. Yeah, we're ready to wreck this train. As Stevie would do, three, two... This is Coco Talk with your special guest hosts, Grant Leedy and Curtis Boyle. Today's guests are Thomas Cherry Holmes of Errata Online and Jim Brain from Retro Innovations. Right. Hello, everybody. Looks like the intro messed up there a little bit. <laughs> All right. As you can tell here today, I am co-hosting with uh, L. Curtis Boyle here. Yeah, hello, and, everyone. And Stevie is out today for family. So it will be us. So this train wreck will be a major tra train wreck today. <laughs> I was just going to say, is anybody else watching YouTube? Because I'm just seeing a frozen picture at this point. I finally oh. started working on YouTube. Oh, no, I, I got it going now. Hit the play button. <laughs> I had that going. It just I had to do a force refresh. All right. Everything else looking good? Well, aside from all of us hosts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so today we are joined here with Ron DeVoe. How are you Hello. doing today, Ron? Pretty good. How's everybody? Good, good. good. And then we got Mark Overholzer here. Hi, y'all. And then all the way from, all the way down from Australia, Nick Morantis. Good day, everyone. Hello. And then we have Steve York from sunny California. Yep, nice, sunny, 95-degree day. <laughs> and then, of course, Elkhurst Borough, all the way up north in Canada. Sunny and 69 Fahrenheit at the moment. <laughs> and then, of course, Coco Man from Ohio. Hey, everybody. And then finally, David Ladd. Hello, everyone. And I can't wait for the show to get going. <laughs> and what have you broken today, David Ladd? Anything? Mm, broken? No. Does family count? <laughs> <laughs> it's early. All right, great. So, anyways, um, anybody have any project updates, acquisitions, recovering from Coco Fest? What's everybody been up to this week? I got a Coco too. Claimed to not be working, but it works great. Is that an yeah. eBay purchase, or is that from? Uh, yeah, it was eBay purchase. purchase. Yeah, it was eBay purchase. It was uh, forty dollars US plus ten dollars shipping. So. And was it just the system, or did you get some software and stuff? Because I thought no, I just, saw them both cart. Okay. No, just a system. I bought some software separately, but uh, no, it was just a system. But, you know, it worked great. Uh, obviously, somebody didn't know they could just use RF, and they need to plug it into a TV. So, Almost like it's free. Almost like it's free, yeah. So, anyway, so it's only got 16K, but it does have ex uh, extended basics. So. Oh, that's okay. good. Cool. Oh, and I got some games, too, including Dungeons of Daggeroth. Yay! 
I know yeah, that I a lot them. of yeah, I know that a lot of Coco ones were shipped without the extended basic, but I didn't think that many Coco twos got ex- shipped without extended. Mega yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe just at the beginning when they first the day. Yeah. Yeah, that that ROM was expensive because the license fee for extended basic uh, to Microsoft. Yeah, and I think the later Coco twos actually just had one chip that had both ROMs, didn't it? Right. Yeah. So I think it's only when the original Coco twos came out in eighty three, eighty four ish that they had the separate ROMs that they probably sold a few. Yeah, I have one. Yeah, when Tandy um, made the deal for the operate, you know, for the language, the uh, regular color basic was a lot cheaper than the extended color basic license, and also a lot of the costs that went into the disc controller was mm-hmm. not just the Western Digital, but also the license fee for the disc basic. Yeah, Microsoft liked to make money. I actually, they still do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I got my first uh, Coco. It was a Coco 2 16K standard. I was not a happy camper when I realized that they have to have extended for a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But, yeah. hey, it gave, gave me a reason to buy another Coco another year later. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you bought a uh, original color computer, that was $400 for a whopping 4K of RAM and uh, just that color basic, where <laughs> if you ha- if you typed in a line wrong, the only way to fix it was to type the entire line in again. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. I remember those finest. things. <laughs> I got so frustrated that I wrote a thing called Screen Edge or Control System, and Datasoft actually sold it because it was had a screen editor on there, and it also did high-res graphics. Yeah, but it was $549 in Canada for the 4K color basic model when it first came out. I do remember that. That's what I bought mine for. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at Coco Man, 16K standard basic. Yep. I think that's exactly the same one I had. And that's how it came from Radio Shack when I got my first Coco. So, uh, but later we sent it away, and uh, they well we took it to the store and they sent it to a service center and they put uh, upgraded the 64K and extended color basic and. Uh, it made a huge difference. Yeah. So, any other uh, purchases or uh, product updates from anybody on the panel here before we continue? Well, on? I, I did get an acquisition. Uh, someone gave me a computer. It was brand new. They never used it. It's not uh, Coco. It's called an ITT Extra. And uh, here's a picture of it. And it's uh, brand new. It has a 20 meg hard drive in it. It has. Uh, um, WordStar, um, what was that one two three program? <laughs> Lotus, Lotus, Lotus one two three. Yeah, has games on it, rudimentary games. We and, had a clone uh, of WordStar on the Coco two called ScreenStar. It was an OS nine word processor. Oh yeah, yeah. Had the similar commands. Yep, the same command set yep. as much as they could. I mean, we didn't have the extended keyboard, so. Yeah, um, it has fourteen megabytes free. Pretty interesting. It has uh, 1985 DOS in it, and it had um, a uh, testing program by uh, PC Magazine where you could test to see if your processor was faster than 4.77 megahertz. There it is. The Laboratory Benchmark Series program was on there. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and um, it has a speed test to, relative to an AT, which is 8 megahertz, which this didn't approach, naturally. 
It was 4.77. So it's an 8086 or an 8088? 8088. Okay. And it has a math coprocessor. Oh, an 8087. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> Big bucks back in the yes, day. Yes, sir. Why well, would you ever like- need any more computer than that? Yeah. Motorola kind of had a coprocessor for the 6809, but it was actually, from what I remember, just a ROM library of math calls. It wasn't yeah. actually an actual, you know, separate CPU. It was just a, a list of functions you can call without having to write your own. Yeah. Well, that that's my uh, acquisition for this week. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. I didn't buy anything because I bought everything I wanted at the fest that was available. There's a few things that weren't in stock, so. Mm-hmm. What all do you get, uh, Curtis? Well, I finally picked up Bomb Threat, the patched one, because I'm not a an avid collector where I want you know the bug version because it's like an upside down <laughs> flying plane stamp or something. But uh, I want a game that actually you know, can play all the way through. So thanks again, Grant, for finding that bug so I got fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did talk to Rick, and he says he's going to do a lot more testing on the next game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he'll have to on this one because this game's a lot more complicated play-wise too. So, we got to remember when he was developing for Tandy. Tandy did the play testing for him, yeah. like all of our other. You know, I, I mean, I did internal testing, but I would throw the stuff to them and they would bang on it for a while. And they go, "Oh, we didn't find any bugs." I go, "Yeah, that's because there's no bugs to find." Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely it helps to have third party or you know extra people that aren't tied with the project because you come some, sometimes see the you can't see the forest for the trees when you're developing and you don't think of trying to do something weird a, a regular user would try mm-hmm. and you just play the game the way you're expecting it or the run the program that you're you're expecting it and yeah it runs fine for me and then you give it to somebody else within five minutes like well I just crashed it I don't know who would be doing that not at all yeah. you mean broke it. <laughs> when I was at THQ basically the golden rule of thumb is for every person that was in the department that either created the graphics, the art for the game, or did the music, or did the programming. For every one of those people, they had one. Of, they had that number of people testing that game in the game test division. So we have like about 20 guys sitting in there, and just imagine trying to play Bassmasters Fishing Tournament hour after hour after hour. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> they didn't have any sort of automated testing where it would just like randomly move joysticks or hit keys or something just to see if it was like crash proof or no no and actually that was the the uh, bass masters had a lot of testing in there because you had a lake that you had to drive the boat on and they had to make sure the boat didn't get stuck anywhere oh, so you had to, like, follow the shoreline or whatever and, and exactly they would stuck. yeah because the artist would go oh i like this shoreline better it looks better and then the next thing you know the boat gets stuck in the shoreline if you could <laughs> hit it at the right angle Wow, at this point, it sounds almost as boring as real fishing. Oh, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they like testing the um, uh, mask video game a lot better. Yeah. And Nick, I was going to ask you, how, did you make any progress on your uh, your music editor and stuff and music player for your upcoming mega project? Well, I've, uh, I'm, I'm working on the machine language part itself, but it's not at a point where it actually plays anything as yet. It's getting there. Um, I do have the uh, basic editor pretty well complete, so I mean I can do a bit of a demo of it actually working later on if you want. Um, sure. But yeah, but it doesn't actually play music, but that that's the part I'm working on now. Cool. 
And I think Coco Man has an update on the switcheroo. Just a, just a very brief uh, switcheroo update. All all orders that were placed at Coco Fest have been uh, have been shipped and are at the, at this point probably received. And uh, I am busy with the uh, next run of cables and uh, actually have a quite quite a few slots in the next run already already paid and uh, ready to go. So it's uh, it's prove it's proving to be very popular for this little toggle switch. That's good. Good. Would you call it a runaway bestseller at this point? It's the it's the best selling hardware product I've ever sold for the color computer. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down. Mm. All one of them. Without any question. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad things are going well on that. So, I think a lot of good hardware stuff's been coming out here the last few months. So, everybody better be getting their wallets out because there's a lot more stuff coming out. I think too as well. Yeah, it was a lot of stuff demonstrated the fest. That's you know you can see the actual boards, but they're not for sale yet. So there's a, a lot of interesting stuff coming down the pike, and it's not just Coco three stuff. It's Coco one, two, and three, which is nice. Or in the case of Coco VGA, they've actually they've got it running on the dragons now. I guess it technically works on the MC10, but obviously you can't fit the cover back on. So your 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 door stopper becomes much larger than normal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, of course, everybody was dropping their jaws over at the um, uh, Jim's booth when he was demonstrating his 8-port multipack. Yeah. I, I, w I was thinking about buying one of those, but then it had too much of David's drool on it, so I didn't want to. <laughs> I, I thought I'd wait for a cleaner model, but uh, I know he was pretty excited by it. Uh, Thanks uh, a lot, Curtis. <laughs> I think the draws were really dropping when you found out that you could plug a second pack into the first pack so you could have 16 ports. Yeah, I mean, you for you folks out there, that say you can never have enough to enough ports for a cocoa. I, I'm sorry, 16 ports. That's more than enough. Do we even have enough to plug in 16 things to a multi pack? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Now, if you went back into the old days, I mean, Alpha Products slash Colorware used to sell their what was theirs a six slot expander, and they had a list of about 20 different hardware project boards that you could get for it, like timer circuits and RS232 and parallels and. All kinds of stuff. So if you're doing your make-your-own project type stuff, it was quite popular to do that kind of thing. And people were complaining back then about running out with four. Yeah. And we did at work. We, we we had four, and we had like you know literally four or five devices on every card, trying to cram everything in there. And then of course you got Ed with his uh, four pack, and comes with two RS two thirty two car um, ports, and oh yeah, the sound chip too. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Speaking of which, he actually put some demos up there this last week that were pretty sweet using that sound chip. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. I was going to put a link up for that, or at least we have a demonstration so we can actually hear what it sounds like. Uh, you have the link handy, Steve? You can throw in the Skype chat or the YouTube chat? Maybe Skype because um, I can't remember if YouTube lets us. I think there are... YouTube usually mangles the link. Yeah, they're MP4s, I think, the demos he had. Yeah. Or M4Es or something like that was called. M4A. But, uh, <laughs> yep. M4A. Uh, Which uh, is MP4, I think, basically. Yeah, I, I don't think they're things that he actually composed. I think they're just files uh, composed on other trackers as such on, on a PC. Yeah, but it whatever. demonstrates what no, the no. chip's capable of. But well, yeah, no, no, no. no. The, he said that this was uh, played off of his test. How the, yeah. uh, the multi-pack on the Coco. 
So he must, uh, yeah, that's right, because he's writing software for his, um, or whatever he calls it, his media player, VGM player or whatever. So he's uh, just, yeah, that'll be good. It sounds like it's a, it's a register dump type affair that he's got. Mm-hmm. I would get the more advanced sounds rather than just the pre. Well, um, it, it, it means he does, his player just has to um, send uh, register values to it in a, as a stream, which means the, the files are quite large. Whereas I'd like to see actual music program, like a program that actually only stores the notes and then plays it properly because you know, that's where it's actually playing. Well, the other way, you got to remember, Nick, that this you can also download instruments into this chip too. Yeah. So you yeah. kind of need that information. Yeah, there's instruments as well. So they're like digitized samples, kind of like a mod file uses then of an instrument? They're not mm -hmm. digitized. They're actual um, settings for the chip to um, to program the sounds in. But you can so, make it sound like a snare drum, kettle it's drum. A, it's what, an FM, know. yeah, it's an FM synthesis chip. So they're playing with the, it's an actual synthesizer rather. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's the beauty of the chip. It, it is an actual synthesizer. It's actually synthesizing the sounds rather than just putting a digital recording in there that, that it plays back. Grant, I did put the link in our Skype chat if you want to pull up the file and play it. Yeah, I can't do that. Can you do that, Curtis? Because I'm I not able to try. share. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I only have two monitors. I would need three monitors for that, so. <laughs> you only have two monitors? Oh, yeah, boy. I know. <laughs> That's so 20th, first, 21st, uh, 20th century, you know. <laughs> Yep, so that's probably one of the next things we'll be upgrading now. So first world problems. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hey, I also got a uh, laptop this week too with uh, that other computer I got, and on there was a. Uh, <clears throat> well, actually, it wasn't on there. It was on old CD I had, is a uh, synthesizer machine mm -hmm. thing. See it um, here. Something actually, like yeah, that would be cool. Um, that software that you you have a picture of there now. Uh, what is it? Where, where can we get that? That's called Easy Keys. Is it still like, around? No. Well, I think it was on his laptop when he got it. Yeah, it was Windows XP uh, time. <laughs> wow. Way back. Anyways, yeah. it, I have a video of it on uh, Ron's Garage with um, a little mm. bit of sound coming out of it. It's, it does little drums. It has uh, embellishments. Uh, styles and instruments. I, I, I think that that emulates a normal FM's um, bass. Those little Yamaha keyboards. So that would be interesting if that can export the FM uh, mm -hmm. sound patches. Anyway. Okay, I think I've got it queued up. It's playing in quick time. We'll see if the audio okay. works on the show. Put it on. Yeah. All right. Cool. cool. Share screen, share window. Hopefully the audio comes through. <laughs> Don't get to share the sound, system sound. Okay, that didn't, you didn't hear anything then? Nope. nope. Okay, go hit, hit the plus and then go to uh, share system sound. As soon as I figure where I put my plus, there we are. <laughs> Uh, 
It's great, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have an option for sharing systems. So. Yeah, the Mac. See, this is where Microsoft dropped the ball. The Mac version of Skype does not have a share system sound. Oh, well, that's no darn good. So they, so he can't do it then. Ah, darn it. Well, well links in there. If somebody else with a, a Windows machine wants to. Grab yeah, that. right. So what is I, it you're playing? I'm getting it for. I'm getting it ready for you right now. All right, Curtis, go ahead and stop the screen share here, and then we'll. Cool. This is why people should not buy Macs. <laughs> no, this is why Microsoft <laughs> should write some damn good software for change. Well, they do on the PC. No, they don't. <laughs> Skype does. Um, I hate to say this, I use Windows, and no, Microsoft doesn't do a good job there either. So. Well, Skype was causing spontaneous reboots just a couple of weeks ago for everybody on every platform. That shit tells you how good their, their software testing is. They need software testers like Steve was mentioned before. You know, mm -hmm. go base fishing by the shoreline with their software. So, Yeah, I can get it played on my system, but right now I'm having an issue with that particular sound. We can come back to it later and I'll get it working. No, I got it. I got it. Okay. David to the rescue. This is collaboration at its best. <laughs> okay. So what are you playing? The link I put in chat. And uh, the ready. trolling has begun, by the way. <laughs> you guys hear it? Yep. Yep. The, you might want to forward this. This track's slow. The other ones are a bit better. Well, you just got to wait for the song to get going. Yeah, it, it builds up as it goes. So our, our new Coco Talk theme song in the background. <laughs> now you can hear the synthesized drums as well as the synthesizer tracks. So. Right. Seagulls on. Yeah. Drinks until five o'clock. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, this is not eight bit style sound. This is sixteen bit style sound. Yeah. yeah. Bit beyond the normal chip tunes. Play the whole thing, so yeah, that's, that's I, I, I think, yeah. yeah, I think you get the idea of what what what, what this chip can do, and Indeed. it's kind of nice. Who do we have? I believe this is Thomas Cherry Holmes coming in. Mark was talking about him earlier. Mm. Yes, this is the uh, guy that runs Irata Online. Hello. 
Hello there. Hello, welcome there. to the show. Thank you. So, uh, Mark told us a little bit uh, in our kind of a pre-show chat here, but just for the sake of the whole of viewers listening that weren't part of that, uh, do you want to kind of explain uh, who you are and, and what, you're, what you're doing with the uh, project that Mark mentioned? Absolutely. So, um, my name is Tom Cherry Holmes, and I am the systems operator and the guy that wears every other hat on this project for um, Errata Online. And Errata Online is essentially an online service that I am targeting specifically for the entirety of the retro computing community, all of its various tents. And it is a system that is essentially based on Plato. And Plato was a long-running, massively amazing time-sharing service that ran from 1962 until NovaNet shut down in 2015. And uh, Errata is part of the long line of resurrection that's happened uh, to take and bring Plato to the masses. Um, so to basically try to, t try to tie this up, there are two... Um, there are two existing Plato systems out there right now. One of them is called Cyber One, and the other is our, is my system, Errata. And the difference between the two is that while Cyber One is mainly for uh, expatriates of the original Plato system, uh, Errata's mission is to essentially take and bring uh, Plato's technology to retro computing users and use it as a way of unifying all of the various retro computing sects together under one large umbrella. So that's it in a nutshell. Okay, so you're targeting all retro computers. Does that mean 8-bit systems exclusively, or are you including 16-bit systems, or what, what's your cutoff? Eight, well, Mike, well, uh, we have, yeah, I'm primarily targeting it for 8- and 16-bit systems, primarily because, well, you can't put a cocoa onto Twitter or Facebook. So, uh, but that we do have internet connectivity options in the form of Wi-Fi modems and Ethernet cards and the like. So, um, it it would be possible with a suitable terminal to actually be able to bring these systems onto Errata Online and to be able to use the facilities uh, on Errata Online to not only handle social networking aspects uh, as well as multiplayer gameplay aspects. But there's also a full-blown development environment built into this thing. So we can take and make something unique for us inside this system, for all of us, that we all can use. Okay, and just from reading your, your page here, it sounds like it's... Is, is it exclusively graphical? or Like if you're dating yes, stuff back is. to the original 1962, obviously that yes. would be text-based. No, it's not. That's, that, okay. and that's, a mis that's a misconception. Okay. Actually, the original system was graphical-based, and it's one of the, it's one of the main uh, innovations of this particular system. You have to understand that by the early 1970s, Plato had so many innovations under its belt that if I were to list them all, we would be here for hours. But... Um, <laughs> I mean, um, uh, just, just to give you one small example, they knew starting out that uh, as part of their system, they needed not only full screen interactivity, uh, meaning you pressed a key, you saw something happen, but they also knew that they needed graphics. Well, as you may know, in the early, in, in the, in the early to mid-1960s, even at that point, while semiconductor memory was brand new, the average cost per bit was over $2. So 
if you're wanting to take and produce something that's roughly the resolution of a television screen in terms of pure memory, that would be cost prohibitive. So what they did instead was literally invent the gas plasma display to support this project. So the modern gas plasma display that we see in televisions and whatnot literally came from this project. Just as, just as one example. Oh yeah, and by the way, it was also a touchscreen. And all of these things were not only well established by the 1970s, when, which was Plato's hey heyday, uh, but they continued to be used all the way up into the late 1990s. So, uh, like I said, yes, it's, um, so yes, to, to get back to your point, the terminal itself is extreme, it is graphical, and any terminal that needs, any system that's going to connect to it needs to have a suitable ter uh, terminal written that also handles uh, both graphics and text on the screen at the same time. Okay, is there a minimum graphics requirement for it? Like, you need a certain resolution, certain amount of colors, et cetera? Or? Well, you, you, um, uh, there's, um, the original system, of course, was monochrome, and the Plato terminal specification is 512 by 512. And what most, uh, what, what, for example, what happens with the Atari terminal is that it scales down to 320 by 192. Uh, the line drawing functions, the text, the uh, font output functions, etc. It scales all that down to fit onto the screen. Uh, the Atari version also has a facility so that you can zoom in and look at the uh, look at the display, yeah, pan around the display, and in, in full size if, if you want to do that as well. So something similar for the co for the color computer will have to be done. Okay, so we could use the hardware scrolling, for example, and actually do a real five twelve by five twelve. You could just scroll up and down, for example, or yes, scale it as you're mentioning, or scale it down. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, yeah. And to facilitate all of this, uh, on the website here, you see the you have the features and the requirements here. Um, there's also a text section, which um, actually provides, among many other things, a complete protocol description for the uh, uh, for for the service for the protocol that's used in the service, both in HTML and ASCII text format. And um, there are also multiple implementation, example implementations in C, so you can get the idea of the algorithms that you need in order to implement a terminal. Okay. Does it support sound as well, or, or is it just graphics? Um, there was a device that was attachable to Plato terminals uh, called the uh, Gooch Synthetic Wind Woodwind, and P-Term, uh, which is the software that works on the PC, actually does support this. Uh, so yeah, uh, you have the ability to do sound, and the protocol has plenty of uh, tricks up its sleeve in order to facilitate communication with external devices, which you could also take and map to a sound card, for example. So yeah, it's pretty open-ended in that regard. How do you pay for this? Uh, I pay for this for the fact that uh, I literally have a day job that uh, supports me and my family extremely well, so I'm doing this entirely as a labor of love. And how long have you been working on this? I've been working on this since uh, the Plato community roughly uh, it released the initial Cybus distribution late last year and um, have been silently working on it, got it to a workable state right at the end of March, and released it out into the public, and have been tirelessly promoting it ever since. 
Well, thanks for coming on and sharing that with us. It uh, definitely looks like an interesting project, and uh, I haven't had a chance to look through the tech specs there, but, I mean, some of the stuff is particular with Nitrous 9 because that's kind of my my forte. Uh, we have a lot of graphics commands that were also designed to be thrown across terminals using escape code sequences and stuff for drawing circles and boxes and stuff. So oh, yeah. it looks like it sounds like that would actually be a pretty nice fit between the two of them. Absolutely. But, right. but somebody has to make a front end for us, right? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, yeah you have to write a terminal program to basically handle the... The Plato protocols. Yep, and and that's part of my thing as well. Since I have experience implementing the protocol, I just finished. Uh, well, I'm I'm almost finished with an Android version of the software, so I have all the protocol bits in my head and how to implement them. So anything I can do to help facilitate that, um, uh, I will bend over backwards to help. I, I know all the weird little ins and outs that need to happen. So cool. um, yeah. So what do you serve this on? I serve this, well, that's an interesting thing in and of itself. I serve this on fairly standard PC hardware, which is emulating a control data supercomputer, uh, specifically a control data 17865. This machine is a large machine, was built in the late 1970s, and the uh, register size is 60-bit. The memory word size is 60 bits wide. That's 60. And okay. um yeah, it's almost a 64-bit machine in the main. Almost, frame. yeah, almost, and I'm and yeah, and I'm I'm emulating all of this on a fairly standard Linux distribution, uh, you know, and I've uh, got everything set up to where, uh, you know, BTRFS does live uh, live snapshots of the whole system, so it backs everything up. So while while it's running, so um, yeah, it's uh, just fairly standard hardware, and I've got it running here in a rack in my lab. So. This would be an emulating, emulator, emulating thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's multiple levels of emulation here. Yes. And, and you did the Atari uh, port yourself, though? The Atari port actually was done at Atari itself uh, in the early 1980s. Um, but as it happened, a handful of people came over from Control Data, which was one of the, which was one of the stewards of Plato. And um, worked with Atari to actually take and produce an official cartridge. So we've taken that cartridge uh, and made a couple of small changes to it to, a, to report a slightly different terminal type for various arcane internal reasons. And uh, basically you can throw that onto a flash cart and, um, and, and run it directly on the real hardware. And that's exactly, I have a machine over here on my bench that does just that. Now, is this uh, the Atari 8-bit 400-800 series? Like that's the, correct. That's okay, correct. I just want to make sure it wasn't the ST or TTs. No, it's so, this is this is before this is yeah 1983 1984 time frame. Okay. So yeah. So yeah, as that happened, we also recently discovered a terminal for the uh, TI 994A as well, and it works okay. with the service as well. So, you know. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yep, so yeah. could there be something that somebody has done in the past for the cocoa? I I would have imagined if that would have existed, you guys would have found it already. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can't say I've heard of it. So <laughs> we'll have to call Fort Worth and find out. <laughs> so I do know that I do know that there was Plato courseware that was done and sponsored by Tandy. Uh, that would have been done on the uh, Plato courseware development system PCD two. Um, but as far as a terminal emulator, I'm not so sure. 
Oh, Richard, we can hear you. Do you, how many different platforms do you currently have the old terminal software for? We currently have the old terminal software for Atari and TI-99-4A. I am also smack dab in the middle of implementing a terminal for the Commodore 64. And I've got development environments set up to handle, uh, right now, Apple II, Apple II GS, uh, uh, Amiga, Atari ST, uh, Atom, a few others. Uh, I'm basically in preparation for either me writing the terminal software or helping someone else to uh, write this software. And that's part of the reason why I'm trying to go on and promote these systems here, too, because I'm looking for interested people to help out. Because while I am a competent software programmer, there's a certain slow t slowdown time for me as I try to get familiar with the hardware, and uh, and try to and try to coax the hardware into into doing this stuff. So, um, would you say that basically you don't? Uh, what's cool about your part is you don't have to have any kind of memory stored on your part, right? It's all correct. Correct. Goes. Yes, the majority. Yeah, the majority of the system is 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 just a term is just a terminal. Yeah. Now there is now there are there is a variation that is called a microplato or microtutor, which allows you to run an interpreter on your machine uh, that also works in tandem with my system, so that you can run certain parts of the certain parts of the lesson locally. But that was never used very much. So if someone were to write a 6809 interpreter for it, it would you would have the ability to run certain things locally, like if you wanted to do arcade games, for example. Sounds like a, sounds like a challenge. Yes, that's something that's, be very worthwhile. And that and, and that's and that's part of the real that, that's part of the one of the more interesting aspects of the system. We have a subsection, a, a notes file on on Errata called Projects, and that is for the Indiana Jones types. Because, quite frankly, uh, we have a lot of amazing catacombs buried within the system. Uh, nothing was ever gotten rid of or thrown away. And we need to go in and discover what these bits and pieces are and document them. And just like in Indiana Jones, sometimes there be snakes. So we have to find them, document them, and work around them or fix them. There, you know, and... We also have the ability to take and modify the system software itse uh, itself as well. I just received a series of patches on punch card decks for to add some to add some commands to tutor a language uh, to add support for uh, TCP/IP sockets. So we'll be able to communicate in some form or fashion with the outside world. But I have That's to cool. figure out how to apply them. <laughs> So in our terminal pro program, we'd have to be able to have a buffer so we can record what we did. So, it's, so, well, I mean, it's, you need a, you uh, the only the only buffer that you absolutely have to have is a FIFO, basically to handle the incoming serial data to translate it. Other than that, uh, the only other uh, the only other uh, requirement is that uh, to to really help things, especially at higher speeds, is to implement Exxon and Exxon flow. That's mm -hmm. it. Now, for the 8-bit uh, machines that you do have uh, software already done for, which is the Atari and the TN and you're working some others, now, did you receive the source code for the original Atari, or did you have to like reverse engineer Actually, that? Or? Well, that's a funny story in and of itself. Actually, initially we did, um, initially we did a disassembly from, uh, by hand and uh, managed to get roughly about 90% of the way through, and I got, uh, got in contact with another friend of mine who runs the Atari uh, 
the Atari Museum, Kurt Vendel. And uh, as it happens, he has, uh, you know, he has tape backups of virtually everything that was in Atari's personal computer division. And one of the things that he had uh, was the source code to the Play-Doh cartridge. And uh, when I mentioned it offhand, he went, oh, I have that here. And he just sent it to me about five minutes later. Oh, thanks. I should have talked to you earlier. Yeah, before the 90% <laughs> was gone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, um, as far as the TI, don't have the source code for it. It needs to be modified. And so looking for people who are, you know, well-versed enough in 9900 Assembler to be able to, to, to handle that. Uh, the nice thing is, is that with the example implementations that we have, you know, like I mentioned before, those are in C. So... Um, anybody can basically take a look. Anybody who decent programmer can look at those, see what the algorithms are, and you know basically port them across. Okay. Now, do you have the source code for some of these eight-bit machines actually available for people to look at if they want to try to transcode yes, it do. to a different CPU? Yes, they do. Yes, it's all in the tech section. Okay. On I wish I had more time to get onto that project. I might help you with it because it sounds interesting, but I've got too many stuff on my plate right now. So That's, hopefully somebody yeah. else can volunteer. I it's, hope. Very, it's very interesting to me. I used Plato because I went to the University of Illinois, and Plato was kind of originated at University yep. of Illinois. Absolutely. So we used Plato all through my college career. Um, and so I actually used it on an 8 bit machine back in the 1991 92 timeframe. Unfortunately, the software that I used on an 8-bit machine, I, it appears to have disappeared. And I thought I had copies of it on some disks that I had from archives, but I can't seem to find it. But, but uh, um, wasn't wasn't the Hell 9000 made in Illinois? It was. Yes. It was <laughs> uh, lots of interesting things have been made in Illinois. <clears throat> um, so, Jim, well, what 8-bit what machine did you run it on back in the day? I ran it for um, I ran it on a Commodore 64, which was surprising to hear that they're building a new Commodore 64 client because I know for a fact that a Commodore 64 Play-Doh client existed at least in the 90s. It was reasonably well complete. It was reasonably complete and um, um, and would work at 2400 baud. And so that's that's what I used when I didn't want to go. I think. On the main page, you can see the terminals, which are, I mean, they were nice machines. A lot of them, though, at the time were still, uh, they had wood grain cabinets, and they were this um, kind of neon orange plasma color screen. Yep. Um, yep. In the 90s, uh, they were starting to roll out more of a PC style uh, Play Doh terminal functionality, which was basically a PC running the Play Doh terminal software. But the original ones were this kind of, you know, kind of the kind of big, fat, uh, not very many keys on the keyboard, kind of like an Apple II. Um, let's see, not an Apple IIe, but uh, you can see a picture of it. Um, you can see a picture of it if you go to Google Images and type in Plato Terminal. You can actually see a few different pictures of them and see. Yeah, the keyboard though was a big, fat. It was a, it was like a chunky thing, and um, and and so then of course they had the touch screen. Um, and whatnot, but it was a little hard on the eyes after a while to use those. So lots of us, if we could, we would we'd try to access it from our dorm room so we didn't have to... And, and, and besides, there were only so many Play-Doh machines on campus. So, yep. so how much yeah. software, software was made available, available for the, the Play-Doh systems? Well, that's the thing. Um, with the distribution that I've got, um, there are approximately 16,000 pieces of published courseware. 
that were officially part of a, a Cybus distribution, which is what I'm running here. Uh, the uh, machine that's running over on Cyber One actually has more, a lot more. So it, you can attribute that in, very, in a very big sense to the fact that Tutor is incredibly easy to learn and extremely powerful. So. Well, it definitely sounds interesting. I'd like to get some Google people involved in that. That'd be interesting to join yep. in the join in the fun. Absolutely, and I mean, and to really put a bow on it here, uh, I actually do. Uh, I actually do meets every weekend, Saturday and Sunday. As a matter of fact, I need to go in roughly about ten minutes to start for the next one, uh, where I take and demonstrate the system and uh, talk, try to talk with users to, uh, to see what they want and try to get them engaged in the, in the platform. And later on, I will actually start doing workshops showing how to do Tutor, how to make software for the system and whatnot, doing example games and whatnot. Okay. Do you have videos of that up on YouTube too, like of one of your yes, I do. Seminar? Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a, um, there's a video section on the website, which I'm continuously adding stuff to. Okay. So people want more information, basically just hit your site. You've got tech specs, you've got sample yes. screenshots, sample videos, mm -hmm. yep. kind of explanation of the whole project as well. Exactly. Try to be, and with, this, and with the main site there, I tried to be as succinct as I possibly could just to draw people in and to try and engage. So. And what's the website again? Errata.online. Yes, there is, a, there is a domain called .online. <laughs> Is that now that's spelled how do you spell Rata in that case? Uh, it's Atari backwards. R I R A T A. <laughs> cool. So it's the it's the name of the planet. If you ever played Mule, it's the name of the planet in Mule. Right. Okay, well thank you very much for your time and, and explanation of all that. That does sound like a interesting project. Like I mentioned before, Nitrous Nine has graphic primitives already set up to be very easily term you know, put over a terminal. So I would think, for the most part, we just need a translation yep, grid between the two. The, and I have, if you look on in, in, in the GitHub, especially for like the Plato Term 64 project, you'll see uh, protocol.c, which contains a complete uh, protocol implementation for all, the nest, for all of the basic necessary bits that you need to implement. Okay. And you've got some extended stuff, I'd assume, for more modern machines that goes a little bit beyond the 8-bit stuff. <laughs> That's actually yeah. That's actually implemented in the Android terminal and in the P. If you want, there's the P term source code, which implements the complete terminal, complete with Z80 emulation from MicroTutor and everything else. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank Thomas, you. for coming on here. Likewise, Mark. I'll see you later. Bye. Hey. All right. See you later. Thanks, Mark, right. for uh, for having him come on. That was pretty cool. Oh, this this is exactly. Oh, I think we lost hey. Mark. Yeah, Mark <laughs> muted again. Cat uh, stomped on the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cat so, your sensors. Uh, this is this is all exactly what I've been thinking about having an integrated platform that people connect to, you know, gaming and stuff. And so this is you know basically the whole structure for the back end. So I'm totally behind this. So. Is this kind of like a Discord? Uh, no, actually, it'd be more like an uh, early online system like uh, the Source or Delphi. CompuServe or, or Delphi or Gen. Yeah, it's basically a mini computer running, you know, multiple connections. Except we're going to be connecting across the internet instead of, you know, dial-up. 
Yeah, and graphical, so it's more like AOL versus say a CompuServe, which was all text based. Mm-hmm. But but it's lightweight graphical because like like I don't know if you explained that you can basically when you set up your program you can redefine certain characters with images and then you download the graphic images as part of your initial setup for you know entering a program, and then it's all done locally on the terminal. So when you send a small a lowercase a, it actually puts up a graphic symbol instead of the lowercase a. So yeah. you basically can redefine your graphic characters as you go. So it's still lightweight. That would actually so how, work well with the Coco VGA in? too, then, because Brandon just introduced at the fest here his new definable graphics characters on the Coco VGA for the sixty-four column and thirty-two column mode. So that'd be perfect fit for this. Yep, it would be. It'd be hardware hardware support for this instead of software. Yeah. Sorry, so go ahead, Ron. In that so case, how do you how do you wait. log into uh, to it? Is it like a telnet session or? Um, yeah, it's a terminal session. Um, if you go to the uh, Arata dot online there's uh, some links to a, a thing called pterm so it's available for windows mac and there's source code for linux um and so then you can basically go to irata online uh at port 8005 and it'll give you a graphic screen that comes up and i'm trying to remember there's a place where you can log in uh, basically you can establish a new account and then he'll have to okay you and then set it up but there's basically an account name there is a group that you're assigned to and then there's your password so that's like a B, uh, joining a bbs then in that yes. case but yes, that's not except, the gaming stuff, right? Well, the games are already on there. If there's a certain menu with games and there's various stuff, David Ladd and I were playing with, uh, trying to play with some of the uh, Tank War ones, where you have a, a World War II simulation. But we played the Pong game. There's a Pong game you can play, that works pretty good. Um, and then there's some other games too. Some are text-based, some are more graphic. So, so the thing it is, it take much to just convert, like uh, maybe uh, Ultimate Term or something to it, or. So yeah, more to the, to yeah the thing that. is to basically add another terminal emulation to like Ultima Term or some other terminal program we already have, or the ones for OS 9 that, you know, already have stuff like that. And then, you know, you'd be good to go. And there's a bunch of stuff on the system already. So it isn't like having to start from the basement and build up. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's a big step up. I mean, you know, I was thinking of building from the basement up, but here's a system that, you know, has all the low-level infrastructure. You know, and 16,000 programs available already, too, which is a nice yeah. jump. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of them are educational stuff, but yeah, I mean, still, it's, you know, it'll be a great uh, collaboration system for multiple platforms, you know. Think of yeah. it as bringing back the source or Delphi for people. Well, if they have uh, a Jim Brain written, you know, Troll 101 course, I'd love to take that, so. <laughs> yeah, that's going on it now. And Richard, <laughs> Richard, says, Richard said, if Jim likes it, now I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> But Rick Adams also said, too, I have the uh, Delphi term source now, but doing it with OS 9 sounds a lot more practical. I've noticed that uh, Dave Phillipson's been on this morning on uh, Arata Online, and, yeah, he's been getting used to the, the P-term keyboard and the keys and stuff. And, yeah, sometimes you do get stuck, and, yeah, I've had to just cancel out and come back and it restores to usually a menu. That definitely sounds interesting. Maybe I'll, if I get some little bit of free time, haha. I'll have to see if I can just act together something quick to do at least a couple of the primitives. To... Curtis, so you have you know... to decide whether you want to sleep or not. <laughs> I just said a long time ago that sleep's overrated. <laughs> All right, guys. I think we're going to do a uh, commercial break here for a bio. What, what does David, I mean, what does Stevie call that? A bio break? I bio think? break. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Because we've been going on for about uh, almost an hour now. Almost an hour. Um, and I'm almost so... out of Joel Cola, so it's perfect timing. <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, Jim, do you want to talk about uh, some of your projects and boards, too, while we're at it? Or do you want to wait for a little bit? No, I'm happy to talk. If, if anybody wants information, now would be the time. I, I will need to get on the road at some point um, this afternoon, so I may have to drop off. Okay. So let's go ahead and do a commercial break, and then we'll come back to uh, Jim.
We'll return after these announcements. This episode is brought to you by Boisson Technologies, maker of the Boomerang 512K memory board, the Paragon Sega Atari joystick adapter, and the Coco SCART RGB to SCART cable. Find out more at boysontech.com. Greetings, YouTubers. Atari Leaf here, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's me. It's the original gamer, Stevie Stroh. You know, gameplay. To get your copy of a Gameplay Goodness gameplay Color Computer goodness. Gaming DVD today, gameplay head on over to 8bit256.com. There you will find several DVDs featuring Color Computer Gameplay videos by the original gamer, Stevie Stroh. So to get your very own copy of a Gameplay Goodness Color Computer Gaming DVD, head on over to the Retro Swag Shop at 8bit256.com and tell them the original gamer, Stevie Stroh, sent you. Radio Shack TRS-80 put the world of color computing into your home. Instant loading program packs turn any color TV into an exciting game arcade. And there's more. The color computer is an educational aid, a home management tool, and up-to-the-minute electronic information service. The programmable, expandable TRS-80 color computer from $399 only at Radio Shack, the biggest name in little computers. What's going on, everybody? Stevie Stroh, and I want to say thank you for continuing to watch and listen to Coco Talk. We love doing this show. We think we put together a pretty good show for you, but this show could be better with your help. So if you would like to send a feedback, a comment, a suggestion, a show topic, or maybe even your own little segment or bumper, then send it to us via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. This show would be nothing without you. Love to hear from you. We now return you to Coco Talk. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. And hey. uh, I guess we're on to Jim Brain explaining some of his hardware stuff we saw at the fest. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, get ready to drop your jaws. Uh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, Coco Fest was the time to bring out. Um, new hardware or at least bring out you know stuff that you've been working over the winter holidays um i know cloud nine brought out some stuff and richard lorvieski brought out some things so um for a couple of years i've been working on a multi-pack um i had a 440 mpi that i've been working on and um so i probably late last year um started to consider what i was going to do with that particular project um, had kind of put it on the back burner because I was working on some other items trying to figure out, you know, what all needed to be in a multi-pack. And so um, uh, decided to kind of dust that project off and see what needed to be done to it to get it to production status <clears throat> so that I could get it ready for the show. And one of the things that I decided is I, I originally in the, in the multi-pack um, as I was searching for a multi-pack back in 2015 or 2016, one of the things I wasn't too wild about is the idea of um, having a, a big kind of wart hanging off the side of my color computer. And so the, so the initial design I had used um, some IDE ribbon cables to connect a small board uh, to the larger kind of multi-pack capability. Um, and that was the prototype I showed in, I think, 2016. Um, and so it took me a little while to figure out. I, was, I became a little bit disillusioned as I learned more about the Color Computer's expansion port because I was saddened to find out that um, 
that the the switching capability for the ports is not is not complete. Um, so the way the color computer works is that certain um, registers spaces in the I/O space of the color computer can be switched among ports, but others can't. And I was a little unclear whether there was a uh, still market for uh, a, a four part four port MPI. But then I think in 2017 we started seeing some additional hardware capabilities. Um, uh, you know, we probably you guys have already talked about sound cartridges and of course the Coco SDC and people still want to copy their floppies and so forth. Um, so I dusted off that four port unit and decided that I didn't like the idea of um, extending it to be even longer than it was, but I thought maybe there was a way to offer a capability for additional ports on the unit um, and along the way realized that I could put some additional ports on a four port MPI um, off to the side. And so at the, at the show I, I demonstrated a, an eight port unit um, that has five slots on top and then of course one on each side and one in the back um, and then a connector that sits underneath the MPI that can be used to put a um, kind of a, uh, an expansion card or an expansion capability underneath the multi-pack because right now on the main uh, multi-pack unit it's a kind of a bulky unit and the bulk of that is made up of the power supply which you don't really need anymore with switching power supplies and whatnot. Um, but the underneath of it looks to be a good place to put some additional expansion capabilities for the color computer. <clears throat> and so it seemed like there was a good good place to at least create some future expansion capability um, around the MPI. Of course, I was readying a product uh, for the show, and so I was kind of keeping it under wraps. And then the uh, uh, and then uh, Ed Snyder uh, came out with his, I think he's calling it a mega mini MPI. So there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of um, uh, discussion about that. It's got some additional peripherals built into the unit, um, and so uh, uh, so I kind of I, I probably rode the coattails of all of that discussion. There was already a lot of people discussing around multi-packs, uh, multi-pack interfaces at the show, and uh, so when they got to my booth, they could they could see the eight-port unit, and then of course immediately, folks are there's usually two groups of people that came by the, sh the booth. One, gr one group of people was, I don't know why you'd ever need more than four ports, which is fine. <clears throat> and then you had another group of people who were like, oh my gosh, I, I, I've got so many new ideas now about additional things that I can put on on the unit. So um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Right now, the, the prototype unit that is fully functional went, went with John Strong back out of the side of the show. And John's kind of our resident case-making person. Um, I have a 3D printer here, but I'm still getting learn. I'm still learning how to use it. So, um, and I think John's that's kind of a passion of his. So I sent it home with him to try and figure out how to build a case for it because I think uh, I think that pr I think the product looks much more professional if it's if it's finished up in a case. And um, and then when when he gets back um, with a with a price, I'm going to order probably 10 or so cases and then put probably 10 or so of the units together and, and send them out to, to folks that I know can put them through their paces just in case there's some lingering, uh, you know, issue that I need to deal with. The The problem with an eight port MPI is not necessarily that there's eight ports and that's fine and it works just fine. Um, the problem is, is that most software is not going to know about the ports above four. And so uh, I put in some 
some emulation capability into the design so that you can flip a switch and um, each port becomes doubled up. So port one and port five um, are essentially treated like a, 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 a port one in an MPI with a Y cable on it. Um, and so I figured that would help some people out that want to take advantage of the additional ports, but their software doesn't uh, doesn't really know about the the significantly additional number of of uh, uh, of, of multi pack capabilities or multi pack uh, ports available on on the new unit. So I want to make sure that works and does what everybody wants it to do. And then of course there's a couple things that I want to verify, and I just sent out a note this morning about. I know that back in the day, there were a lot of people who modified their MPI for like running BBSs and whatnot, um, so they could have maximum performance out of the unit. They would tie all the cartridge lines together, I believe, in order to get um, uh, interrupts to, to come yep. in as quickly as possible. Strap and the IRQ lines together so you'd trigger instantly on no matter what port the IRQ came on. That's right. But the problem is, is the cart line is also used to indicate that a, that a cartridge has a ROM there. And so the question I'm trying to, I'm wrestling with right now is how to present a, um, a capability of tying the cartridge lines together in the MPI while at the same time offering the ability to not tie them together uh, for people who don't need or want that capability. They want just stock MPI capability. Um, so just a few, I guess maybe a few final pieces to put together, um, and then uh, and then the, the unit should be uh, ready and be interesting to see what people, what kinds of things people put in it. I did load the unit up here and do some testing on it. Most of the cartridges work really well with um, with the additional ports. Uh, I did have a few challenges with the speech sound uh, boards or a, a pack. Um, I don't I don't really know. It seemed to be it seemed to be related just to that particular uh, expansion uh, capability, and so I don't. I need to dig into the speech sound controller and see just what exactly it's trying to do. Um, it would function correctly, but it would it would start emitting this noise out of the speakers on the TV whenever uh, sometimes when I would boot the unit up. So just a little bit, it, it, and it didn't work. It didn't. It wasn't a problem unless you had the unit fully loaded up. So um, there is, though, I think something to be said about the fact that um, the old 80s uh, style peripherals that were pretty power hungry um, and they may not be decoded all that well because uh, it was expensive to put additional chips into those units and whatnot at the time. Um, I think all the newer cartridge capabilities will happily coexist in the in the eight port unit but some of the older cartridges um, once you get off the beaten path of like a floppy drive controller and a Glenside or a Super ID hard drive controller and some of the heavy hitters, some of the more esoteric cartridges that aren't like game cartridges, um, it, it, they could they could load the the unit down significantly. So I think the the key is is that eight ports are available. That depending on your mix of what you have at your disposal, eight ports might not all be um, it, may, it may not be equally possible to put any arbitrary eight uh, cartridges into the unit. It just kind of depends on how those cartridges play with each other on the on the on the Coco bus. <clears throat> now, are you supporting the 12 volts that some of the old cartridges used to or just five? No, I am, but I'm doing it. So I, I do both. So I have there's um, and I, probably somebody there's probably a picture of the unit. I didn't take a good picture of it before I gave it to John. So I don't have a good picture to put up right now. But 
Um, the front of the unit has uh, two power supply connections. One is a five volt mini USB connection, which is good for any of the you know general purpose um, kind of USB wall warts that have switching power supplies in them. Or you know if you have anything that happens to deliver five volts via a mini USB port, you can use that. Um, I was going to use a uh, kind of a barrel plug like um, you know we used to see a lot of, but I uh, was a little leery of doing that because it really does need to be five volts, not something else. There's no voltage regulator on the board to, uh, so it really needs that five volts to come as uh, you know as a um, regulated five volt from a power supply. Um, but the other one to satisfy older boards that have needs for those additional power uh, sources, there is a DIN 5 or DIN 6 connector on the other side of the, um, the multi-pack that accepts a, uh, a power supply. I have one, you can, it's a switching power supply that provides a, five, a plus 5, plus 12, and minus 12 volts from, from Meanwell Technologies. They're pretty pretty common uh, power supply uh, manufacturer. And uh, not a ton of voltage, uh, or not a ton of, ton of amperage in this particular power supply, but there's no restriction on it as long as you have a way to get plus or minus 12 volts to that, uh, to that DIN connector on the front of the unit, you can, um, you can use that. And then, of course, that, the, those power sources are also switched on along with the 5-volt power support power supply or power source when the unit starts up. So instead of like on the regular MPI where you have to uh, turn the MPI off and or turn the MPI on and turn the cocoa on then or whatever order you put it on, this unit automatically senses when the color computer is on and it will turn on the power to the MPI automatically for all three voltages. And it will support up to four amps of five volt power and then two amps of uh, two amps of 12 volt uh, plus 12 volt power and, and two amps of minus 12 volt power. Although in reality, I think there's only a few cartridges that use those additional power supplies and your power needs should not be probably that extensive on the plus and minus. Yeah, I think the, the original 1793 floppy controller, the one that some people wanted to use for high density drives is one that required the 12. And I think the uh, X-pad I think required the 12. I can't remember what else. Mm -hmm. Off the top of my head, but those two for sure. The floppy controller can be modified with the newer um, Fujitsu chip, though. I've done that, and they seem to get pretty decent results. I haven't done a lot of testing with it, but you know, it works. Does it work with high density mod too, or is that just? I, I don't have a high density mod, and I know that David has one. I should probably send him a Fujitsu chip. Let him try it. So I would like to volunteer my testing facility to you. That's fine. I will, I will solder one of them. I'm going to probably have it. They're not, they're, not, they're not that hard to solder up. They don't have a lot of surface mount technology on them, but they're just, you know, soldering 40-pin edge connector after 40-pin edge connector after 40-pin edge connector gets a little <laughs> tedious as a while. So I've got another unit soldered up here that I was just waiting for some final parts on, and then I'll get it ready and, and, and get it sent out. I, I, I have some, you know, I have some ideas for some some other potential capabilities for the MPI, but I think there comes a time where you kind of need to ship a unit. Yeah. So feature creep. <clears throat> that's right. So I think I'm gonna just gonna call it done and, and put it on. I, you know, I'm, I had a little bit of challenge in 2016 or uh, late 2016, early 2017. The 
The ribbon cable introduced uh, introduced a little bit of um, additional noise in the sound line, and so I wanted to deal with that. And I think I've got a I I put a There's put a low pass filter on on the yeah that's true that's the unit right there that's um, in the middle there is 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 the uh, is the main unit and then over on the right hand side is one that's fully populated. Um, so I had some small issue with. Uh, additional noise on the sound line and so I feel like I've kind of taken care of that so I think that was the last thing I think somebody on here is it's it's difficult to ship a product if you're if you're not completely comfortable with all of the things that it does making sure that it does them well um, so that was kind of the last item that I wanted to kind of clean up before I uh, before I put the unit in production it just has taken me a long time everybody's got jobs Jim, you were saying that you're having a problem a little bit with the speech sound pack on a fully loaded um, multi-pack, right? Yeah, correct. correct. Uh, you got to remember the speech sound pack actually does have internal voltages in there that are different than the 5 volts. They knew that they were going to drop the 5 volts on the, the other uh, power supplies other than the 5 volts on the cartridge when they came out with the two. Mm -hmm. And so the cartridge was designed to take the 5 volts, run through a DC, a DC converter to create the other voltage, voltages the cartridge needs. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the problem is they use the clocks that are on the, um, the EQ clocks to generate the frequencies that they need to create the voltage on the DC to DC converter. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why it doesn't work well when you turn on the double speed poke on a Coco 3, but more importantly, it is a very power hungry cartridge. Well, that, that's probably the last thing you said is probably the most. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> that, that's probably the, the most likely culprit. I was powering with a smaller power supply, and I, at the time, I, I mentioned it not because I think there's a long term problem with the speech sound pack, because when I took a few of the extra cartridges out, it, it booted up fine, but. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when you're that that's probably the thing that's best to say. When you have a fully loaded unit, you probably need to make sure you have plenty of power budget because <clears throat> you know, if you get some of those older eighty cartridges, especially like the speech sound pack, and they happen to be pretty power hungry, then you could quickly be running out of out of, you know, power. And once you get a slump in the power rail, so if your five mm -hmm. volts go down to four or whatever, um, different cartridges behave differently. Some cartridges will be like, ah oh, well, whatever, I'll just work with four volts and some like the speech sound pack may say you know what? I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna do what I need to do because I don't have my full five volts or whatever. Mm. <clears throat> exactly. So. Uh, the unit can have. You know, it's got its own controller <laughs> inside there, and it could have a problem booting when it doesn't get enough power. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is happening. So, yeah. Like I said, I. You know, some of these things. Um, like I said, I didn't want to bring into the show unless I I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it worked, and I didn't get the boards. Um, the board, the final boards back until it was not too long before the show, and so I, and of course now that's after the show, it's it's been, quite frankly, it's been a week of just kind of depre de um, I don't know what you call it, kind of depressurizing, kind of depressurizing. De I, I kind of you know whatever debriefing. It does not the right word, but you just sort of you know you sort of after you spend so much time, and then you've been at the show and you've answered so many people's questions and whatnot, you just come home and you're like. I, I don't even want to think about this for, for a couple days. 
We'll blame David for that because he was asking you lots of questions about That's 16 right. slots. And, <laughs> and you yeah, spent a lot of time wiping the drool off the table there. The most important thing, Jim, uh, what kind of warranty are you going to offer on this uh, multi-pack interface? Uh, one hour. <laughs> one hour or one mile. <clears throat> oh, okay, good. And that's you actually had from uh, my house. <laughs> you had three people that approach your table. Three kinds of people. Mm-hmm. The two you mentioned and then the other kind that wanted the brownies. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. My daughter, <laughs> my daughter she, she, uh, she got a lot of business from people who were waiting to talk to me. So that she always likes yeah. that. But they, all, <laughs> but they all shared a common interest. They wanted to return items. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get trolled by the troll. That's right. He's another, uh, another compliment is uh, the letter style you use for your um, sheets and having everything the same in uh, red. Uh, everything looks real professional. I think you did a nice job. Well, I, I tried to do that. Previous years, I would get there, and then people would come by the, the booth, and and I'm always happy to answer questions, but they'd look at the products and then they would step away. And you sometimes you'd walk around at the other booths and you'd hear these same people say, "Oh, I, I the stuff over there at that retro renovations table looks really good, but I don't know what it is, and I don't know the guy, and so I don't really want to ask him any questions." And I'm thinking, "Okay, well, I, I need to fix that." So you get better at this as time goes on. Um, but in any event, uh, so that that's one of the things that you know I put in. Hopefully, we'll get in the marketplace very quickly. I assume most people will want a case, although I've got a couple people who are like, hey, as soon as you can build some units, I'll, I'll buy one out of the case, and, and I'll put a case on it myself. So I'm like, okay, fine. Um, David did, or, or somebody, Curtis did bring up a good point. Although I don't necessarily recommend this, um, the, the unit can be expanded. Um, so it comes in two pieces. The one piece plugs into the cocoa and it provides the buffers, and then the other piece is attached via a ID cable and has the actual ports on it. Um, two of those second components can be hooked to the ribbon cable. As we all know, an ID cable has two connections um, for drives, and so it's the same kind of cables. Um, so you technically can put two eight-port units together and hook them up to the one color computer. Um, I have. I have not done a lot of testing on it. I tested it enough to know that it works. Um, yeah, the the uh, the big big issue is going to be that you know how, where do you find software that's going to scan all 16 slots and try to find everything that that is on the on the system. But but for somebody who truly wants to be on the bleeding edge, you can put two of the the main MPI units together and uh, and and try your hand at running 16 devices. Um, off of your color computer's expansion. Awesome. Yep. I, I figure really we would put cool. every single one of the new sound cards on there at once, and we'll create a symphony orchestra program that actually runs them all simultaneously. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> now, um, I do have a question. If, if somebody was going to go and try to do the 16-slot solution, I'm assuming that will not work with the cases. That yeah, no, it would. Oh, what? Um, no, it would, because the, ca- the case would... The only thing that would be a little bit strange or any, a little bit interesting is um, the one case needs to have the IDE cables go into the case and then back out of the case, whereas the the design initially is just going to be for the cables to enter the case and then they'll just, they won't come back out. So the only thing would be maybe making the, the I don't know how John's going to deal with where the ribbon cables are going to go through the, um, you know, go through the case, you know, to from external to internal. 
Um, but wherever they do go through, you, you may need to make that particular location wider in order to have the cables go into the case, and then they have to come back out because they have to go to the second unit. <clears throat> okay. I, realistically, I mean, there's such a thing as it is feasible and it is always possible. It is. I'm not sure how practical it is, but um, but if somebody wants to play around with that, it's it's it is the the hardware solution will support that capability and. The Tandy back in the day, although I'm positive that they never intended for it to be used to this level, they did provide built-in capability in the uh, kind of in the space for this the MPI capability. They provided the expansion capability for up to 16 slots or up to 16 devices to be put in there. <clears throat> cool. Yep. Um, now that's just one of your boards. Yeah, I was going to say, so one of the other ones that I brought uh, to the show and really is, is a prototype as yet, I, I, I haven't, um, haven't kind of finalized the design, um, but, but I did want to get some initial testing done on the unit, is um, a, a four-port four um, RS-232 card. There's been a lot of interest around RS-232, and um, we had talked back in... A lot of the folks from this group had talked back in the October time frame about, hey, it would be nice to have a dual RS-232 unit. And then there was this big debate over, well, do you do 6551s from, from Moz Technologies, which was uh, the chip that was used in the Tandy RS-232 pack and the Tandy modem pack? Um, or do you use a newer style um, uh, UART from... A company that most people know them by their number, which is the 16550 or the 16C550, um, a unit that that is uh, that Ed's placed Ed Snyder's placed two of those particular um, UARTs on his Mega Mini MPI. They're they're really nice. They're really nice, and there's there's nothing bad I could say about the the, the 16550. Um, the only problem is is that it has absolutely no compatibility with existing software that would have been written back in the day to use the Tandy RS-232 pack. So, <clears throat> and although I know that folks on the call here tend to skew towards OS 9 territory where compatibility is not such a huge deal because you can just load another driver in, and there is already a 16550 driver for the for OS 9 or Nitrous 9, um, I do like to support RS-DOS and and you know other other users as well, and so I didn't really want to move completely away from the 6551. So I ended up with a design that has four UARTs on the board: two 6551, and then two um, 16550s. <clears throat> and then when I got when I got to that point, I realized I had created another challenge, which is how do you support who wants to use what and there's only so many physical connections on the back of the board. So I created a, a, a multiplexer on the board so that the user can select, or depending on which, which UART they decide to start using first, the multiplexer will shift those RS-232 lines to the appropriate output uh, device on the board. And there's four output devices on the board. So there's two... RS-232 level devices, DB9 or DE9, which is the actual terminology, connections on the board itself, and then there are the pins come out to headers on the board for some of the newer style ESP 
8266 or ESP32 type devices. So depending on question. What, yeah, go ahead. All right, um, the older chips. What what's, what kinds of software are going to use them? They're going to be old terminal programs, right? I mean, there isn't going to be a whole lot of backward compatibility for anything interesting, would there? I don't know that there's. I don't. I mean, I, I agree that sixty five fifty one is it's it's not as full featured as the sixteen five fifty, but for a lot of use cases, the additional speed of a sixty of a sixteen five fifty may go to waste. So there's, oh. I, you know, yes, um, a 16550 would be great for drive wire or for an ESP8266 Wi-Fi bridge, um, or maybe there's, I know. Well, this project, we just had the earlier speaker on for logging into that system. Correct. Anything that has a, anything where the telecommunications capability, where data, where information can be delivered to you faster and your experience can be made better the faster that information is delivered to you, that would be a good candidate for 16550. But on the other hand, things that have a finite device, uh, a finite capability to deliver data. So for instance, like a GPS uh, trans transmitter, if, if, if you cared about such a thing, or a, a mouse, um, or some sort of a input device, like a, a, he talked about on, on uh, the previous speaker was talking about the touchscreen capabilities of the uh, of the Play-Doh terminals, and they make uh, touchscreen overlays that you can put on a screen or whatnot. Sometimes they have an RS-232 interface. They always they always send the data at a very predefined rate, and it's not very fast—2400 or 9600 BPS or whatever. So, putting a 16550 on that is okay, but you're kind of wasting the capability of 16550. So in that case, I think you'd be better off to use the slower devices or the less capable devices for some of that stuff. Plus, any any software that you had back in the day that you you know you wanted to operate um, that doesn't know about the 16550s, and then you could utilize the 16550s for any of that newer software that wants that maximum performance. So you have both uh, two cards, one for each chip. Actually, no, one, it's all on one card with one both. Card. Mm -hmm. Oh. So, it didn't it didn't cost really anything more to lay out the board to support the 16550s. Um, it's not really shown in the pictures, but they live <clears throat> underneath the 6551. Oh. They're just they're very small, and so they just oh. live underneath. So, and if you know, there's always an opportunity to say you know for people who say, well, I don't I don't really ever have a need for a 16 or a 6551. Well, okay. I just won't populate those chips, and I can sell the unit as just a 16550 board. Well, so, what are we looking at in this picture? On the right side is or left side is the one you were talking about. What's on the right side? So on the on the left hand side, yeah, was what we're talking about. On the right hand side is is another project that I brought to the show. Oh. Um, so I mean, I can talk about it, but I figured I'd stop and see if there's any additional questions on the on the UR board. Yeah, I was going to mention like the 6551 for doing serial mice. That's exactly what we did with, with Nitrous 9. We had 6551 and 6552 support, and it did run at a slower baud rate because a mouse is only sending three to five bytes a packet to, to say you've updated and you pressed a button or two. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a lot. I think we ran it at 12 or 2400 baud ourselves in, in Nitrous 9. And the 16550 was for the terminal programs where you run, run at 57.6 with multitasking, not you know slowing to a crawl. So for me, that would have been a perfect thing. I would have bought a ton of these back in when we ran our 
work on a Coco back in the day. Mm -hmm. I would have filled like two or three slots with just these cards. Right. Yeah. So, and and one of the things that is an advantage to the unit is I have, um, so I've done some work back in the day on, you know, some of the other platforms. People use 6551s and realize very quickly that there were two features in the 6551s that people are not quite as aware of. One is the um, the ability for the 6551 to run at 115k um, right out of the gate. So 115k is is no problem at all to run because there's a there's a special baud rate that says um, run run. 16 times slower than the crystal that you have in. And most people had a 1.8 megahertz crystal, and you do the math, and that ends up being a 115 BPS. So that, that capability has been available on a, on a 6551 for a long time, but the people didn't really realize it. And then uh, probably in the late 80s, um, there was a company called Creative Microdesigns that decided to, to add a little bit more value to that and they would they ran the 6551 at double the clock speed. So instead of having a top speed of 19200, it had a top speed of 384 in the native 6551 modes. And then they used this special additional crystal frequency or special additional baud rate to generate a 115k uh, BPS uh, setting and then a 230k BPS setting. And the unit was called the Turbo 232, and so it's, it, it, it was on the market in the late 80s and early 90s. The, I, I, I added that technology to this particular unit for both UARTs. So the 6551s that are on, the, on board can run it up to 230K by themselves. Now, the 16550 is still a little bit better because it has a FIFO, a first in, first out, so it doesn't have to service interrupts nearly as often as the 6551s. But you do, you know, if you really want to do some fast uh, communication and you want to be very compatible. So you want to say, hey, I want to be very compatible with uh, users who have the old Tandy R2 2 pack. You could write your software to take advantage of the 6551. Um, so that would give you maximum compatibility. And then on top of that, you could write some a little bit of just a tiny little bit of additional code that says, hey, if I figure out that you have one of these cards, I can push the performance all the way up to 230K or 115K or whatever it is that you choose. <clears throat> so you have those capabilities in place at well, as well. well. That's good to know because you could definitely get some decent drive wire speeds out of that. That's beyond uh, even the hard-coded bitbanger routines right now. That's true, and I think David has done that. So I think he's <laughs> run drive wire 230K over the RS-232 pack. Or over, uh, it was an earlier version of the of what I showed at the Co at Coco Fest. It was just a single port um, R series of two pack replacement that that had these capabilities. Yes, it was working very well, Jim. Okay. <laughs> I think we just blew up Stevie's uh, head just now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he says I've been doing a shot with each mention of a techno babble word, and he said he's he's currently in the hospital in recovery. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I think was there any questions on the um, Coco Mim and Coco Mim Junior? Oh yeah, that's true. That was at the show as well. I've got a production version of that unit um, that I showed off. It was running on the Coco One 
um, and then uh, I had a, a, the older version of the unit was running on the on the Dragon, but but yeah, those were those were available as well. So yeah, I'd be happy to answer any questions about those. There's not, I mean, people probably know more about those than than some of the other projects. Well, the Coco Mem Junior, you, I think your original spec was, was going to be a five twelve K board. You've since expanded that to two meg, correct? Yep. I um, well, it wasn't really the goal was always two meg. Um, the the reason five twelve became a working discussion is because before I end, you know, when you start these projects, you don't always know um, how capable you are as a designer and whether you're going to be able to make it work or not. And I didn't want to so. Surface mount, you can't buy uh, really, really large SRAM chips or, or RAM memory um, in through-hole packages. You can only buy them in, in surface mount packages. And surface mount packages are great for size, but they're terrible for debugging. And so I really wanted to build the first unit with, um, uh, with, with through-hole technology. And so because of that, I needed to constrain it to stuff that I could buy in through-hole. And the largest dip style... Um, memory RAM type memory that you can get is a 512k RAM memory chip, <clears throat> and so the initial unit had 512k just because um, it was large enough to require the MMU capabilities, so I could test out the MMU, and it was it was small enough that it could be it could be sourced in in DIP format, so I could um, attach some probes to the DIP leads and figure out what was going on. It turns out I didn't actually need to worry about that. My code worked right out of the gate, so it was kind of a waste. But that's where 512 came through. 2 meg was always my uh, goal because it, it just seems like a nice way to kind of fully populate the board. And, of course, now we're getting to the point where 512K may not be enough for people. And so 2 meg may be kind of the new kind of yeah. good horizon for, for memory expansion. Um, but the final unit has a 2 meg uh RAM memory, SRAM, so it's, you know, just like Cloud9's triad board and, and uh, Boomerang and some of the other uh, uh, RAM expansions, it's, an, it's a static RAM capability, so it's very, very power-friendly, um, and there's very, few, there's very few components on the board to begin with, but the board is very small, although Boise did say that it, it's, it's challenging to put it into a Korean, a Korea uh, manufactured Coco Two, because the the CPU is is what needs to be replaced in order to put Coco Mim Junior into a board, and the CPU on that particular model is underneath the keyboard. So uh, I'm gonna have to see how I can reduce the height of the the unit so that it makes so I can make sure that you can put the board in the Coco Two, and then still be able to close the case and put the keyboard in and all that without without things getting mashed or touching or whatever. Um, but okay. two does it work is, on the dragon as well or yes it does. It works on the dragon. There's no there's no you know there's no difference. Um, it works as easily on the dragon as it does on the Coco one and two. I've I've tested it on all the units I have. I have a well, I have a Tano Dragon, you know, California Digital is where I got mine, but um, I'm gonna send one to um, probably send one to Tormon um, so he can, uh, you know, say, see if he can test it or he or somebody can test uh, the unit in a, a non-U.S. Uh, uh, dragon. But, but I, you know, I don't anticipate any problems. It sits in the CPU cycle, C CPU socket, and it, um, it, uh, it, it handles. 
things in a way that's not Dragon or or color computer specific. Technically, you could drop the unit into any 6809 based unit. It doesn't really have to be a uh, it doesn't have to be a Coco or a Coco compatible type unit. The only thing it requires, which is also changeable, but currently the MMU functionality is modeled off of the Coco 3. So um, the FF8 or sorry FF9 to FF the FF9X range and the FFAX range are taken up by the MMU register. So if you wanted to drop it into a 6809 board that had something else at those locations, you'd need to move those to somewhere else. So now we're just waiting for the uh, MC10 version for Steve Bjork to, to oh, test. So. That's right. <laughs> MC10 version. Wow. Now, as far as we... software support goes, I think right now Tormod's already got an Oestine level 2 for Coco 1, 2s, and Dragons. I think that already supports at least the 512, like for the mm -hmm. Moo board, and should it support the 2 meg right off the bat. And I believe Brett Gordon's Fusic also supports the full 2 meg on this too, does it not? It should, yes. The only thing that the only things right now is that most of the code that's written for a two meg unit assumes some Coco three specific things, graphics modes or whatnot. And so uh, we have to understand that Coco Mem Junior just provides memory expansion. It does not provide any of the additional video modes and whatnot. So you have to separate out, you know, okay, what's part of this is Coco three video related, and what part of it is just memory related because the memory related stuff should work fine but the the coco or sorry the 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 video related stuff needs to be dealt with because you, yeah. you kind of have a hybrid here you have a you have the video capabilities of a non coco 3 machine but you have the memory capabilities of a coco 3 machine so it's kind and of I'm pretty sure Tormod's already done that on oh it's 9 I think David do you remember cuz I think that's one of the builds he's done isn't it um I believe from what he's done he's um done a little bit of patching to level two. Um, I haven't looked at the code um, myself um, because of certain other things. <laughs> um, but uh, from what I've seen, it it's whatever he's patched is just enough that it's um, makes it work with the Moo on the level one, on the Coco one, two, and Dragon. So... As far as the junior, it should work. Okay. Yep. The, so, Moo is, I mean, so first of all, let me say that I think what Tormod has done with that card, except for the name, I think he should have chose a different name, but everybody gets to choose the name of the products they want, and that's fine. But um, everything else about that card is is amazing, and so we need to, I mean, we need to understand what it's doing. It's It's basically trying to... Um, sit on the expansion bus, which was never designed to have extra memory there, really. And it's trying to play the part of replacing the memory that's inside the the, the Coco 1, 2, and, and Dragon computers. But there are some pretty significant restrictions that he has had to work around. Um, and uh, so he is, he is somewhat limited in what he can do and the patching that he's had to do in order to make sure that you can get access to that memory and what parts of the memory map of the 6809 you can effectively use with that. So there are some definite, there's some different constraints that he's working under. The Coco Mim Jr. doesn't have any of those constraints because it sits right inside the machine. It sits right, right on underneath the CPU. It, 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 the only constraint that it has is that it cannot relocate video memory. So if you have video memory, um, 
or if you have the video uh, screen and you've defined it in the bank, you know, in the first 64K of RAM because that's where the Coco 1 and 2 have it, that's where it always has to be. It can't be, it can't be moved to the, um, to the card, or to, the, to the memory that's in Coco Mem Jr. because the video chip doesn't know about any of the memory that's on the card. It only knows about the memory that is in the unit. But, that, but given the capabilities of the 6847 um, uh, chip, I don't think that's a very big, it's not nearly as big no. a price to pay as, as Tormod has had to, you know, the constraints that Tormod had when he, when he worked on his memory expansion. But one of the things that it comes with is a cost, and the cost for Coco Mem Jr. I mean, there's a cost to buy it, but the cost for the unit really is that if you pop open your Coco and you don't have a socketed CPU, you've got a decision to make, right? And the decision is, do I want to bring my color computer to uh, to one of the shows and have one of the individuals replace the CPU with a socket? Or do I not want to do that because I'm just, I'm really a purist and I don't want to do anything with my color computer? That kind of decides your path. So if you're willing to put a CPU socket, or if you have a CPU socket, you're done, right? So you can choose either one, that's fine. You probably may want, you may want to go with Coco Mim Juniors because it has a few more features and it's got more memory. Um, if you don't have a, if you don't have a socket and you decide to socket your machine, then you're probably going to do so because you want to put something like Coco Mim Junior in place. If you don't have a socket and you choose not to do so, then uh, Tormod's board is going to be your your option if you want to take advantage of additional additional memory. Okay, and I presume it works with Coco BGA too, so you could you know, get some enhanced graphic capabilities. Yeah, the only thing. Oh yeah, definitely. There's nothing that there's nothing that precludes you from putting the expanded capabilities of Coco BGA in place. The only thing I can think of is that. At some point, so I was at the Vintage Computer Festival Midwest uh, last year in in Elk Grove Village, which I highly recommend color computer folks come to if you're anywhere near Chicago in the fall. But anyway, I went there, and there's there's a lot of different machines that are represented there, and and one of the other machines that I don't have a vested interest in at all, but it's interesting to see where all are going is the Atari crowd, and so they had a guy there that was had all his Ataris open, and we were looking at all the stuff that was in one of these Atari units. And the Atari unit he had open was, I don't know, 130XE or something like that. It was one of the newer style machines. And he had it open, and there's this guy over in the Ukraine or somewhere, I'm, I'm not doing justice. But anyway, he has made all these kinds of expansions, one meg expansions and ROM expansions and place to put a mouse and a keyboard and everything. And this guy had this 130XE all uh, decked out with all these expansions. But at some point, there was just a sea of white daughter boards on top of this uh, of the top of this motherboard. You couldn't hardly see the motherboard because it was just full of little add-on cards. And I think at some point, it's not so much that it was a problem. It was cute to look at. But I think at least this guy was the same guy building all the boards, and so he could make sure that they would all fit together. I think the challenge you would have with Coco VGA and Coco Mim Jr. and maybe a couple other things that get in there is that Brandon, Brandon and I haven't really discussed about how his card fits in the unit, all the units versus how my card fits in the unit. And so there's a possibility that physically they won't co-locate, right? There's nothing preventing them from from working together if you get them into the machine. But the, but the let's say on one of the variants of the Coco, the video chip is right next to the CPU. Well, that's going to be a challenge because each one of us has boards that are larger than the footprint of a 40-pin dip. 
And so somebody's going to encroach in somebody else's space. And it may be him and it may be me. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know I'm what? Sorry. I just he, saw Stevie. I know. <laughs> he was just being, a, a, he's, he is trying to troll his best, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. And he's he is failing, failing at it. He's just yes, failing he is. at it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've been on this thing for 45 minutes. Do you have anything else you want to say to kind of finish it up? Well, I, you know, obviously the last piece that I know a lot of people were interested in the show was um, I'm very interested in an accelerator capability for the color computer. And so one of the first steps in that is understanding how to get another CPU to function within the color computer. Um, so at the show, I brought a prototype unit that has a dual 6309s running on a cartridge that you can put into the side or into an MPI um, that contains, the, each of the units has their own 512K of RAM, and it also includes 512K of flash ROM. Um, and both of the units can operate autonomously from the, the CPU and the COCO. So you've got the CPU and the COCO doing work, and then you also have the C two CPUs in this cartridge that are doing work. And so, you know, multiprocessing capability is really where that would shine. Each one of the CPUs has the ability to run OS 9 within the chip itself. Um, and so I, I'm kind of interested in building out the cartridge a little more and seeing if people can provide any any value or any kind of with any killer functionality that, that would benefit from having multiprocessing capabilities. Um, uh, on the up, to, up to how much faster would you say uh, it would be? Well, I think... You know, currently the unit that I brought to the show runs at the same speed. The CPUs run at the same speed as the main CPU. So you could get, you know, you could get up to, you know, three times the performance. Not quite, but getting close to it. Um, if you were able to successfully keep those other CPUs completely busy. A unit that I have that I've been working on is a unit that runs both of those CPUs at four megahertz. So you would have the two processors running at four megahertz. And then, of course, the original CPU that's in the Coco would run at either 0.89 or 1. Point whatever it is. Um, 7.8. Yeah, 1.78. So you could use this as a coprocessor for like pre-doing graphics. You could have it, you know, running pre-mixing sound samples together, so you can just pull a single byte out instead of mixing the four voices manually on the main CPU. Um, so rendering graphics screens. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it has a lot of potential for doing stuff like that. I think, and and the the big big advantage is. There's a lot of FPJs and stuff in CPLDs that could also do this, but there's not as many programmers in the Cocoa community that know how to actually program those chips properly yeah. to do it and or have the hardware to do so. This is something mm -hmm. where you could load in stuff yourself and, and writing in a CPU you're already familiar with, mm -hmm. you could do all the same kind of thing. Sorry, oh, Steve, that was, yeah. One of the things that you could do as far as like 3D graphics, you could have the co-processors work on the matrix translation for rotating or scaling the object. You mean vector? Yep. Vector graphics? Yep. And if it's running, at, at, like this later version of the board, if it's running already twice as fast on those CPUs as the Coco ever could in the first place, and you got two of those, and you can divide one mm -hmm. for doing sound and one for doing you know, 3D matrix transformations, whatever, you could have some pretty wicked, wicked mm -hmm. software coming out of that. And Ron, I wasn't talking about vector graphics. I was talking about if you got a 3D object and you're trying to rescale it or other oh, things, okay. or if you've got it in a matrix and you want to put put in a proper area, use a translation matrix to get the image there. Okay. There's lots of possibilities. I don't. I mean, 
right now it's just uh, there was funny every, there were people that came to the, so to, to Ron's point earlier it's funny having people come to the booth sometimes because you'd have people come and there's all these different variations of folks coming but they did fall into categories and one category of people would walk by and every one of the cards they would say how much is this how much is this how much is this how much is this and I'm like that's a prototype that's that much money this is a prototype so it's like they see it and they're like I want it and I'm like you don't even know what it does yet I mean you don't even there's nothing that even is written to use it it's you know? shiny I know, it's pretty so. and pink I mean red but yeah I thought that was just hilarious I'm like I don't even know if it's going to be of any use to anybody but I mean I guess I should have just said uh, 80 bucks okay I'll buy one okay we'll find you R&D spending that's what that is I know that's true no, I, I think that has a lot of potential, that, that particular board, and combine that with a Coco Mem with the 08 Meg and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. think that sometimes people will buy product like that to experiment with and see what they can push? Like, you're kind of doing that yourself. Mm-hmm. You're coming up with stuff that maybe the regular guy wouldn't do, but, um, you know, some of us, some of the guys here are specialty freaks, and they would take off with it and do, do things that... Uh, Pretty crazy, I guess. Well, that's Ma- what he was just, just talking about. Imagine getting one to Sockmaster and seeing what he could do with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to put them in the hands. I'll be honest with you. You know, this is all kind of a journey for me. So, I think I talked in one of the other shows or one of the other visits, and I said, you know, the idea is you only get to understand the technology of the color computer and what it's fully capable of if you. If, if hardware is where you want to focus your energies, you only do that by building these units and you kind of progress further. So, you know, first it's how do you interface anything to the expansion bus? And then how does the MPI work? Well, let's build an MPI to see. And then the other one is, well, how do you how do you successfully have more than one thing own the, the bus? Well, let's play around with that. Let's see how that works. How do you deal with, you know, RS-232 traffic? And can you do more than one thing on a card? Or does every, every interface have to be a one-trick pony? Well, no, you can put two or four things on a card. Um, so there's just all these. And, and to me, you know, I'm not really ready to share kind of the end state. But to me, every one of these is a opportunity to learn another piece of what my end goal is. But you can't do it all at once. Because if you try to build a board that has everything you wanted on it, then you, you, get, you just get so, I think, frustrated in the debugging and diagnosis of bugs and all that. So you got to kind of work on one thing at a time. Like this board that I showed at the, at the show, the idea for a second processor, and, and Curtis, you hit the nail on the head. I thought it would be really nice to have a, a 6809 on the board and some sound generation capability on the board, and then you could write your sound routines in the 6809 and run them on this, on this other cartridge. And I built a board like that, a prototype, and back in late December or whatnot, and I got it here. And I started working on it, and I got the CPU to work, but I could not get the CPU to share the bus effectively with the main computer. And so I looked at the data sheets, and I realized the data sheets kind of lied to me, which is to be expected at times. And so then I went back to the drawing board, and I came up with a better solution, which is what this particular unit has. So it's like every time you do one of these things, you're learning something, and then you try to apply that to the next thing, and then hopefully over time you come up with this very large, very impressive functionality, like a Coco Mem or you know something, some other things that I've I've got on the drawing boards. You can come up with those things, and you can bring them out, and people say, "Oh my gosh, how'd you get there?" Well, it's taken two years, right? I first started off here, and then I went there, and so on, and 
And now we're finally at the place where you can be dutifully impressed with whatever it is that I've got ready to, to roll off the production line. And that works the same as software development too. I mean, you 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 build your chunks of code for different certain functions, and then you put them together. You don't try to write the whole thing as one big schmoz. Mm -hmm. Do you run into people that look at your stuff and say, you know, why it's an old machine? You know, it's like I try to explain to some of my relatives and friends and stuff that were, you know, working on this machine and adding things to it, and you know, I have an SD card that I can put all the software on and. And they go, well, why? Mm. You know, is it a PC? It, what? What do you do with it? What you know? Can you? Are you in the internet or you know? I, I, <laughs> no. I, I, don't, yeah, I don't. I don't worry. I mean, yes, I'm sure there's those people out in the world, and they've been out there for a long time. I've tuned a lot of them out. The other one, I think, the other thing that's helped a lot is with the internet being so prevalent now. Used to be, people were like, "Why would you do this?" There's nobody who uses those machines anymore. Now with yeah. the internet and people have this realization that, you know what, if it exists, there is not just a couple people that like whatever it is. There is a mm -hmm. whole, there's a whole community of people. Like literally, there's a whole community of people who, who collect Cabbage Patch dolls. And there's another pe group of people <laughs> that collect Garbage Pail dolls. And there's, there's Furby people. And there's people who dress up like Furbies. And so, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of people. And so I'm thinking... David Ladd. Yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think S is actually pretty tame compared to what I've seen online. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it's like yeah. people that, you know, build build up old cars that you can't get parts for anymore. And that's that's a hobby that costs thousands of dollars. So, yeah. I, you well, know, this well, is a lot. Yeah, yeah, look at it this way. All you cocoa nerds out there, you can stand your head, stand up, put your head high, realizing there's worse nerds than you. <laughs> well, indeed. Yeah, for me, the color computer was what I had when I was a child. So, therefore, it's, you know, the part of my life that was the happiest, at least dealing with the computer. So, um, and of course, I'm assuming this is for the people that restore old cars because that's what they probably had when they were a teenager, when they were first learning to drive. Or what and they, they liked that car. Or, or yeah, yeah, or what they wanted. And. It's something that is sometimes a strong emotional attachment from your past. Yep. And, Nostalgia. Um, and as far as the color computer goes, adding new hardware to it is not a bad thing because you get to still use it in a way that you want to use it. And if you don't want certain devices because you don't give a crap about that specific device, then don't get it. Yeah, mm -hmm. And, and in my case, you know, um, I'm one of those rare people that push things, doing crazy things that technically is still legitimate, which is how I find out breaking stuff. Or, you know, like, for instance, the eight-slot <laughs> MPI, you know, floppy drive, Coco SDC, um, sound speech pack, Orchestra 90, RS-232 pack, modem pack, Super IDE. You start adding all those together if you want them all usable at the same time well guess what you just went over the four slot mpi there's a new sound bite yeah, yeah really. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and steve's head just exploded again because of all the acronyms <laughs> just threw out so admission of breaking thing well well thanks a lot jim for uh coming on the show and um Telling us all about your hardware and everything, and yes, you have, thank you. You have successfully become the most trolled segment of the show today. All right. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm always trying. Anywhere I can win, right? <laughs> mm. 
So, and this would probably be a good time for me to bring up our sponsors here. And Retro Innovations is one of our sponsors, so make sure you visit his website at uh, goforretro.com, and the four is the number four, or store.go, the number four, retro.com. Yeah, click on the return button. <laughs> <laughs> and also we have uh, cocovga.com, the Coco Project, Coco VGA Project, and then we also have boysentech.com. Yeah. Otherwise uh, known as Trolls R Us Part 2. Yes. Exactly. Troll Jr. <laughs> he he doesn't have a return button because he doesn't have anything on his website yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, Stevie's would kill me if I didn't mention this. Make sure you go to the Retro Swag Shop at 8bit256.com to get your cocoa mugs and T-shirts and Retro Swag uh, stuff there at that website. And, of course, if you need to go to... Uh, I'm a Cocoa Nut website for anything Cocoa related, which also gives you several other links to a lot of other resources for the Cocoa. Uh, and then, of course, the Cocoa Crew podcast is the uh, the monthly podcast that everybody listens to. And then um, Extra Dust, I don't know how you say this? Extractus. Extractus Productions at uh, FD501.com. So, and don't forget STPAC.com. We missed that one there. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, sdpack.com. Had to get that in there, otherwise Stevie would not be a happy person. <laughs> but thanks a lot, Jim. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and it helps, too, because, I mean, a lot of us have the time to talk to you at the booth, but the people that didn't make it to the fest, either due to money or distance or time, I mean, they, they probably had a lot of these same questions that we asked at the show, and having a nice summary of all four of your main project lines that you were showing off is, is good. Mm -hmm. No problem. And also, I'd like to do a little um, section here. It uh, also helps when you actually have people on Discord joining in in some of these discussions of things that they wish we could do or different projects that they'd like to see worked on. And when you can be socially active with other people, you know, you can get in on Discord and join in on conversations and say, is this possible? Can it be done? And other people say, hmm. Maybe you can. Let's see. Can, can I get one of my moderators in the chat to please uh, kick out that original gamer, Stevie Stro, please? Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he's trolling like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, yeah he's kind of filling up the suck in the bandwidth up there. I, think. <laughs> I know. Hey, Bruce. Hey, it's about time for a break, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. We'll have a bio break. I'll let the commercials run here for a little bit. And uh, when we get back, we'll do a uh, why did Tandy do that? Uh, if... Uh, Mark mm -hmm. or Steve want to do that? Yep, All right. Definitely. All right. Here we go. We will return after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Retro Innovations, makers of quality retro equipment for your Commodore, TI, and Tandy color computer. Check out Retro Innovations at go, the number four, retro.com. Hey, have you got your Coco 3 yet? Hi, this is Rick Adams, author of Temple of Rom and Shanghai, and you've tuned into Coco Talk, the nation's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Get ready. 
What's going on everybody, Original Gamer Stevie Stroh here, and if you're a fan of vintage computing and retro gaming, then you're going to love our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. There you will find custom designs by Instagram artist Joel M. Adams. You can get I'm a Coconut, Coco Talk, and other cool video game images on a t-shirt, coffee mug, or mouse pack. So if you love retro, then head on over to the retro swag shop at 8bit256.com today. Tell them the Original Gamer Stevie Stroh sent you. After school, you know what Elliot's gonna do? Jeff, too. Elliot's at work on a book report using Scripsit on Radio Shack's Color Computer 3. It hooks up to his TV. And Jeff's at his Radio Shack Color Computer 3 playing the newest football game. But wait, what's Elliot doing playing new Super Pitfall? And Jeff's having a blast with a new math tutor. You never know what you might try with more than 100 programs for fun and learning. Radio Shack's Color Computer 3 comes with everything you see here. Other items each sold separately, only at Radio Shack. We now return you to Coco Talk. All right, guys, we're back. I just want to mention briefly here, too, that little segment about what did David break this week. That uh, picture of that circuit board blowing up, that was Steve's head from all the acronyms David threw up like, <laughs> earlier. So. Go ahead, Greg. All right. <laughs> all right. I, think, I think Curtis uh, wanted to talk about something here about the, I um, forgot, what was it, the Hugo's project. So I will turn yeah, it over I to mean, Curtis there, here. It wasn't a lot of news this week in Facebook or on the groups and stuff, um, probably because everybody's still hungover from the uh, Cocoa Fest stuff. But uh, Hugo has actually been working on his yes. GUI, which we've demonstrated before. Now he's got window clipping and stuff enabled on there. And he had a little YouTube video that kind of shows a couple of his features. It's one minute long, so I thought we could just run that. There's no sounds so we can talk over if anybody wants to comment. So let me just uh, share some video here and we'll give you a quick look. That's showing up for everybody? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So this is demonstrating some of the stuff he's had before, like but radio buttons and selections and menu drop downs and stuff. But now he's also got the clipping coordinates where you can, you know, resize the window and it redraws. Uh, he still has, says he has optimizations, et cetera, to do. He can definitely speed some of this up. But uh, the, the GUI is looking quite good, and this is for an upcoming game project that he's doing. So are these like modules you can use for other things? Yeah, he's designing it. Uh, I, th I think he's planning on actually releasing it out after his his stuff's done so that other people can use the same library to make their own apps without having to write their own menuing system and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Pretty slick. Simon Jonasson was uh, all anxious to get a hold of it too. Yeah, I think he's going to help him optimize it. And a lot of this stuff was done in the level two version three upgrade that never got officially released. That uh, brother Jeremy was, you know, selling for a little bit there too. But uh, there's some stuff in here that wasn't in that upgrade either. So and don't ask <laughs> yeah. me what that is. That's YouTube at its yeah. best. That's what uh, wasn't included. <laughs> okay. Don't ask me. <laughs> intelligence. Yeah, that's, that's an AI issue. Okay. Worthwhile. If it's a plumber, wow. show butt cracks. 
We'll put Thank that one on the, uh, the wow. card of Jim's there. But, uh. <laughs> anyway, that was one bit of news that I did want to show because uh, it's a really interesting project. The fact that he's planning on sharing it afterwards, meaning that other assembly programmers don't have to write all the GUI stuff. You don't have nice. to write mouse drivers and, and drop-down menus and overlays and everything else. It's a, it's a nice project. Anyway, well, uh, Cur Grant, Curtis. I think we've got our next segment coming up. Yeah, after you just tank the show there for a second. <laughs> All right, let me go ahead and we'll queue up because we're, as Stevie always says, we are a professional show. So our next segment is, why did Tandy do that? And we have two today, so who wants to go first? Go Steve, ahead, you Steve. Want okay. Well, basically, this comes from a post we found on Facebook, um, uh, the Coco Group, where somebody was trying to sit there and say, why are there so many unusual, weird names for Coco games? Well, of course, what he's referring to the fact is that we had an awful lot of clone games where people didn't actually license the game, and they changed the name and a few elements of it in the hopes of not getting sued by the people that actually own the game concept. And um, it was rather prevalent, not just on the Tandy Color computer, but on most of the... Um, computer systems out there, but eventually became even worse because of the way people felt about the computer. It's like, I'm not going to sell products for that machine. They can just go down the street and buy it at their local Radio Shack store. So it's like, you know, they didn't come in here to buy the computer from me in the first place. They're probably not going to come back in here and buy the software. So Radio Shack had a lot of the software locked up, so there wasn't a lot of money in third-party development for the Coco. Of course, Datasoft was an interesting company. We would license the game and sell it to, you know, about four or five different systems. And uh, luckily, the color computer was one of them. And, and just to go further along that line, I've actually got a couple pages on my games page that are devoted to doing officially licensed products. And you'll notice that the original Coco 1 and 2 only had a few um, Tandy did most of them. There was a couple of third-party ones. And then after the Coco 3 came out, Tandy got a bit more aggressive with licensing and, and mostly on Coco 3 stuff, but there was definitely more showing up. And then I've also got a clones page, which actually just kind of compares what an arcade version looked like versus a Coco version. So I'll share that screen. This is not YouTube, so I won't throw up stuff that I had no <laughs> idea why it's throwing up. Um, let me just share this here. All right, cool. We see it. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first one actually happens to be one of Steve's himself here. So, um, And this is one of the fat binaries, I, used, I like to call it, stealing from the, what the Mac called it back when they were doing the PowerPC Intel combo versions. But Arkanoid was one that got officially licensed, and I think you said you did Bash first, and that's kind of what got you the contract at Tandy for it? Yeah, they figured I could get it done quickly, and there wouldn't be an issue, because eh, sometimes some of the developers were getting turning in products a little slow, they didn't understand the fact that Tandy had deadlines of basically uh, mid-spring uh, because they had to print their catalog, and that came out in August. And if they didn't have the game available you know, for manufacturing by that time, it did not go in the catalog. So, you know, it, you know and everything was the Christmas season. You, know, you had to have it done and in the stores for Christmas season. 
So yeah, it, yeah, it just they they paid nice, healthy bonuses, and they did a lot of things to ensure that products got done quickly. Yeah, and in that case is one where you did a, a super cartridge, quote unquote, that actually had a Coco One Two version and a Coco Three version with enhanced graphics. Right, and uh, the actually what's kind of funny is the engine that's running the game was virtually identical whether it was the Coco Three or the Coco One and Two. It's just the little sub drivers it would call that were unique, be, depending on which game it was. I mean, which system it was. Yeah, and you you can also see here. I've got the arcade version on the far right. You can see how close Steve got. I mean, the ratio, the screens, a little bit different arcade games because they basically ran their monitors almost sideways, so they're taller mm. than they were wide. But you can see he actually got the graphics really close to the arcade version. Yeah, on that one there, I had the source for the PC version, which they had the source for the arcade version when it was being developed. So, and, and in the Coco 3, the actual pings were digital samples from the arcade game. Oh, cool. And then a little bit lower here, we see one of the very few third-party um, licenses. It was the Cornsop Group, which is more famous for doing Tier City Model 1 and 3 games at the time. They actually did bring out an official version of Frogger that was licensed. It actually had the multi-part music, and it tried to multitask at the same time because there's no timer queue. It's a little bit jerky as it goes across the screen, but it played pretty good. Uh, it wasn't the best graphical version of Frogger we had as far as graphics goes, but it was pretty good overall. Clendath is rather a unique one. That's actually an officially licensed uh, from the Starship Trooper by um, Robert Heinlein uh, game, but they never made the game for any other platform as far as I know. Mm -hmm. I did make a bunch of movies off of it later. Uh, Moon Shuttle, that's another one of Steve's, and that was the one I think Tandy didn't actually take over when you guys negotiated with Datasoft. That stayed a Datasoft exclusive, correct? Uh, yeah, actually, that was actually programmed by James Guerin and Jerry Humphrey, I believe. Uh, they were using my game engine. This was a game that was produced after I left uh, oh, okay. Datasoft. And that one, you can see, they did a fairly low res. They used, I think, a P-Mode 1 or 2 or something like that, equivalent 2, mm -hmm. I guess, 2 or 0, compared yeah. to the original arcade. Poltergeist, another unique one, a license from the uh, the movie itself. And as far as I know, that was another one that never made it across to any other other platform. That was a direct license that Tandy did with the producers of the movie Poltergeist. And it was another game that was under a very tight restriction to go from movie to game much like the way um, the Atari 2600 um, uh, ET game was. Oh, okay. Because I think this was done by Robert Arnstein. I don't think yeah. we officially know that, but yeah, I think it was him. He was from yeah, Texas. Yeah, it, it barely squeaked in in time for the catalog. Matter of fact, I think it got a little bit of an extension where the game was like 90% done and they had to go with the catalog. It was like one of the few that they allowed. Yeah, and it does have some bugs, like this first screen that's shown in the screenshot there. If you hold down the joystick button, cars never come out, so it's quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about those bug uh, bug testing from earlier. And then, of course, Puyan, which is uh, another one that was Datasoft, and then Tandy took that one over. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got the uh, Coco 3 era ones, which includes uh, Rampage, which um, Steve's discussed. And, and given Jacob all the you know, special tips on how to play it well, he forgot to tell me and Steve how to do that, but... <laughs> we'll get them next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're unworthy, Curtis. Yeah, apparently. 
Uh, here's Robocop, which is, of course, that super cartridge that uh, Greg Zumwalt did that had the MMU hardware built in the cartridge with 120K digitized sound, etc. Um, quite different graphically from the arcade version. And the background music was single voice and a little bit warbly sound. But, you know, there's a lot of levels in the game, so I have to give credit there, definitely. Uh, Greg Zumwalt also did the uh, Tetris, which was another fat binary cartridge, which had both Coco 1, 2, and the Coco 3 versions. And on the far right, you can see the original PC DOS version, because this was originally done in Russia. And it was actually a text mode game at that point. That I've actually seen the OS 9 port that looks very close to that, where it's basically just space characters with, with different colors turned on and off. So actually, the uh, Coco ports look better than the original. <laughs> now, the original arcade version, which came out a few years later, obviously had better graphics. And of course, the most famous one of all, which would be Zaxxon. Um, I remember taking this one to my high school. We had a kind of open day where everybody brought their home computers because we had Apple II Pluses at, at the school. And most people there were complimenting how much better the Coco version was than the Apple II version. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> the, other, the other part of the discussion is on the uh, clones. And I have another page here for Arcade Clones Index, which is very incomplete at this point. But... Uh, Basically, you know, what, what kind of innovative titles, you know, they came up with to, to make these clones out that you would look at the name of the game on the Coco and kind of guess what the game would be, even without seeing the screenshots. And in some cases, you have no absolutely no idea. So here's like the original 1942 arcade and then um, DICOM or, or Dave Dysak is not through DICOM, but he came out with Fighter Pilot. Um, Amador came out as Cuthbert Goes Walkabout, which actually was originally a dragon title before it got to the Coco. And then Asteroids, we've had multiple clones. So there's Color Meteoroids by Spectral, which originally came out directly from them. And then Tandy licensed it and changed it to Microbes, changed the color set from the green screen to the white screen. Uh, Star Blaster, which actually added a few elements from Asteroids Deluxe, so it's kind of a hybrid between the two. Um, Astrofighter, uh, which Mark Data Products brought out as Astro Blast. And that was the very first P-Mode 4 artifacting game I'd ever seen. So somebody had left it running at the local Radio Shack, and I had absolutely no idea how they did this. I, we weren't supposed to get color in P-1-4. So. And, of course, our you know compatriots across the ocean and, and Nick and down in Australia would say, what artifacts? What are you talking about? Game, was it not? All right. And then the so, original Avalanche. You can go into the details of that. Yeah. Yeah, it just, uh, it was so early it was hand-coded since I didn't have an assembler. Ouch. <laughs> but the surprising thing is that your popcorn, because of the fact you used popcorn, the original Avalanche was supposed to be boulders. Yours actually looks closer than any other clone I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like Kaboom and others are based on it, but they're quite different. And here's Ketchum by Dave Edson at uh, Aardvark. And then some games that added extra elements to it, like Kaboom did where you had the Mad Bomber going across. But I think my favorite probably was Starship Chameleon, though, because he added quite a few extra things. He had the hollow bombs that are worth 10 times as much. And then you also had to hit the joystick button to change the color of your... Starship community, you had to catch them with the same color. If you were the different color, you blew up. So, added some gameplay elements. Uh, Bagot Man and Bagman, which, you know, given the limitations of P Mode 4 versus the arcade, he actually did a pretty good job on that. Mm -hmm. uh, Berserk, um, there's the Berserk later called Haywire, which, I, from what I heard uh, from Mark Data Prox, I think it was, um, what's the guy's name? Ron or Rob or something? But basically, he did get kind of questioned about legality of. You know how close it was because he just spelled berserk with an s instead of a z, a z. So they did change it to Haywire about a year after its release. Android Attack from Spectre, which actually had speech, if you had 32k. Monster Maze by uh, Radio Shack. I don't remember who did this version for Radio Shack, but uh, 
a lower res version, but it actually ran in 4K, which was nice for the 4K users. Uh, Bosconian, which actually the the Coco version by Mike Huey added some play elements that I think make the game a lot better than the original arcade version. The original one, you just sat there and you know shot all these space stations, and then you had a bit of a time of where you just get flooded by ships. But he added the whole rescue the astronauts thing to it, which actually added a game element to it that, to me, made it a lot better. Uh, Burger Time and Lunchtime, which was one of the uh, ones from the Tomix subsidiary for cheaper games for NovaSoft. I don't have to run through all these, so Grant, if you want to cut yeah. me off at any point, let me know. <laughs> you just kind of run through them there real quick. I mean, just scroll down. Yeah, so yeah. Carnival and Shooting Gallery, which is another Datasoft. Now, did oh. that one, did you get directly involved with Steve, or was that another one? Uh, Shooting Gallery to? was, I gave James the credit on that one, because at that time, they were only allowing one programmer to get credit on a game. So I wanted to make sure he got some credit on games, so he got credit on this one. Okay. Uh, Centipede, we had quite a few clones. Yep. Circus, which is another uh, clone, uh, uh, clones and balloons that Steve did. And actually, Circus, we took that to the Comtech show, and within 10 minutes of the show opening, we had some people come in from Cinegraphics or something like that, and they said, we no, it's Exidy. Exidy came in and said, uh, you you can't show this. This is based on our game. And I'm going, I looked at him and I go, yeah, but yours is also based on Atari's game. Oh, that's and right. They, yeah. yeah, they just kind of looked at each other and, and kind of, oh, and then they walked out of the booth. So they were all set to sue us until I pointed out that they had ripped somebody off. <laughs> it's like inception for lawsuits. <laughs> and uh, here's Gems, which is actually a clone of the arcade game Columns that are own John Strong did, and actually has Orc90 supports for stereo sound. So as you move your gems across, left to right, it pans left to right on the stereo. One of the very few games that we have for the couple that did that. Contras, which uh, Steve has actually done a really good video of, and it actually supports two-player multiplayer, has digitized sound effects, background music, multi-voice, the whole thing going through. It's actually quite a good game. Unfortunately, it was rather rushed through because the original programmer wasn't able to complete it. Jeff Steidl took it over and finished it, but it does have some bugs in two players because he was only one guy and he didn't have a beta tester to help him with the two player stuff. So there's some known bugs in there. Occasionally, we'll just kind of freeze up and crash. Well, the sound keeps far, running. How far does Steve get in that game? First level. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty well standard fare for Steve to just first level it. So, and where can people get this uh, information from? What's the website? Uh, if you go to my uh, games website, which is www.lvlettercurtispoil.com. Um, slash coco underscore game underscore list dot html is the main root page and at the very top there's some sub page listings that you can go to including these and some others I also have stuff like a timeline that I started and haven't finished I've got stuff by author etc so but yeah there's a whole bunch in here yeah why don't you just scroll through it quickly because this is a big page it goes on and on forever just so I can get more hits I'm not going to go through the whole thing go all the way to the bottom I posted this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Chat. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> it's in alphabetical order, is it? Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> so Zaxxon, which Steve actually did the official Coco 1 and 2 version, but there was never an official Coco 3, so he actually did Z89 here, which is digitized sound effects, something else, too. And then Zaxxon, which was kind of... If you notice, it's got a different angle. That was to make it a little bit easier to program because it was using even bytes to do the horizontal scrolling. Or sort oh. of a little bit vertical scrolling, but uh, 
And it also had the disadvantage of that. And when you did a sound effect, it had pretty decent sound effects. But as soon as you hit it, the machine froze dead to play the sound. So it was very jerky while you were playing it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, there's a ton of games on there if you guys want to go through it. I wow. hopefully will be adding to it later on because I have Wow, there was a Paperboy? Oh, yeah. Yep. Huh. Food fight and what a game that almost nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> there should be quite a few Pac-Mans. I don't think I even have Pac-Man in here yet. Like I said, I'm way behind on doing my website. I keep getting distracted with programming projects. Mm-hmm. Popeye. Yeah, I don't think I even have Pac-Man in here yet. Wow. There's a ton of them. All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Steve and Curtis. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Let me shut my share or not. Yeah. And now... yeah but, but, but that's the thing is everybody was hoping in the third party that it was small enough that the guys wouldn't come and sue them. Though I think eventually Sega did send a cease and desist letter to Zach, the guys that produced Zaxxon. Gee, I wonder how they found out about that game. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, Mark, Mark Data Products, he, uh, when I interviewed by email 10, 15 years ago, the guy that did uh, Berserk, he actually said they did get a warning, too, that they had to change the name. Mm-hmm. And it looks like we have D. Bruce Moore that has just joined us as well. Hey, Bruce. Hey there, Grant. How's it going? Doing pretty good. How are things up there in the Great White North? It's not white anymore. It's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. We're 73 here. It's been going up as we've been talking. So Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Bruce. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one more tan- uh, white attendee to do that. And uh, let's see here. Nick, you want to go ahead and do that now? Yeah, mine will, be, mine will be a quick one, and it's uh, hardware-related. Um, my uh, question of why didn't Tandy do that um, is uh, regarding the Color Computer 2. Uh, The Color Computer 2 sounds like it's an upgrade from the Color Computer 1, but in reality, it was really just a cost-reduced Color Computer Mm -hmm. 1. And a better keyboard. Yeah. Um, So why didn't Tandy take that opportunity to make a composite video output on the Color Computer 2. They just stayed with RF. Uh, That would have been an ideal upgrade for people moving from a Color Computer 1 to a Color Computer 2 to have improved video. And it wouldn't have cost them too much more to add that, I assume. Um, And they did make composite versions. I mean, the, the educational market did have composite Mm-hmm. Coco's from Tandy officially. Why oh, they really? didn't sell it? Yeah, yeah. Why they didn't sell it as a general why thing? Why didn't they sell it? Yeah. So why didn't Tandy do this? Steve, any insight a- on that? Well, um, RF was pretty standard for video games to connect to uh, your home systems. They would hook up to the TV. Uh, people had a lot of televisions in their homes that did not have any form of video in per se it was all rf even the um you hook up a videotape player hey you hooked it up through the rf it wasn't until much later in the systems that we start getting video input on the tvs so there wasn't much market to put that on there also um radio shack sold tvs that didn't have rf only had rf connections on they didn't have video connections so 
you know, that that's part of it. Uh, it's just they didn't feel much need for it. Now, we all know that somewhere buried in the machine was some sort of basic video signal because they had to make the PAL version. So, yeah. but And it, the educational market versions, which actually yeah. did come with the composite out. Because they would use monitors there so that they had cleaner graphics, the text was better, and wouldn't hurt the little eyeballs the kids were looking at. <laughs> on the thing, but these were also smaller monitors, and and you're sitting very close to them, where most people usually were further away from the TV. Now, my 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 question along the same lines, I'd thought about this too when when Nick had mentioned the question, is that you know around the eighty three eighty four time frame when the Coco two was getting done, was also when they were starting to do the deluxe color, which did have composite built in. I was wondering mm -hmm. if that was the other reason was that. No, you want an upscale machine, you're going to pay a bit extra and get our new one with the R32 and a sound chip and composite, and you want that one. If you want to just do the quick hookup to a TV thing, you'd stick with the Coco 2. Yeah, and really the development of the Coco 2 was trying to reduce the cost of the project altogether, and they weren't going to add extra features to it. And effectively, they didn't to the Coco 2. Yeah, Matter of fact, the they, subtract, they did subtract one feature the extra power connections for 12 volts and like that on the outgoing power connector, I mean, on the cartridge port. So they were actually doing some reductions in what the machine yeah. is. So, you know, it's all about getting that price lower so that the Radio Shack stores could sell it well. And, and they're now starting to fill competitions from things like VIC-20s. Yeah. So, Which did have composite video. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, you know, they, you got to have the priorities and, and like that as far as what sells best from Tandy to Radio Shack. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of people hooked up to their big, you know, living room TVs, like 26, 32, you know, the big. Oh, no, no, no. Back in those days, your largest TV was about 25. Oh, I had it on a 30-something, but it was one of those big, you know wooden cabinet ones that you set up there and I just hooked it up and I yeah. take it over and then my Consoles. parents would get 27 yeah. inch yeah, yeah. It, that's what people hook their Atari 2600s and stuff up to too so that was that mm -hmm. was kind of what it was going but yeah I got in trouble lots because I'd be playing on it and no we want to watch TV now no 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 I'm not done the program yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, it's you know we we keep forgetting what we had and didn't have back in the day and it's yeah TVs were smaller I still, my last tube TV that I got was a 31-inch Sony, and I paid about $1,200 for that, and that was back definitely towards the end of the 80s, I would say. When yeah, I got and that I mean, one. as you mentioned yeah. before, two composite monitors back then were like 12, 14 inches usually, so it was mm. a lot smaller. It's more for a classroom environment than a home environment. Exactly. So, yeah, they, they definitely saw the uh, color computer as a inexpensive home learning, teaching, slash uh, entertainment system for the kids. They wouldn't call it a video game system after the crash, though. No. And I think because a lot of parents, you know, were, didn't want their kids wasting their time on video games, so they would try to sell it as, oh, it's an educational tool. You can learn to program on it. And yeah. You can get typing tutor <laughs> and stuff on it. Oh, I remember when they first, first, they first started bringing out the computers at Radio Shack in general for the Model 1, 
they put recipe managers on there so the women could use the computer too. After all, they wouldn't use it for typing up resumes. Now that's something that women didn't do. And I think was I think on uh, Facebook at one point a few months ago, like we, I think Ron had found the old Coco Cookbook program. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. was a pretty rare thing, and wasn't it Mark Siegel's brother or something wrote it? Don't it know something. about that one. <laughs> I, I think he mentioned that it was he was involved with it. I think he said his brother or something programmed. I that that's Mark. He was in the chat earlier. I don't know if he still is. If he wants to fill in the, and something like that. But I'm pretty sure. Basic to, too. Yeah, yeah. It's just and uh, it, it it was slow, so it had a screen that came up and said just um. Wait, wait one minute or whatever, <laughs> so it can access. Yeah, some of those early cook programs, you would sit there and it had come up the recipe, and you tell them, you know, how many people would come up and tell you that you needed one and three quarter eggs, <laughs> like you had a three quarter egg chicken sitting around or something. Yeah, or you just didn't buy the eggs in jumbo. I remember a lot of bartender programs being out there, too, how to mix drinks, and some of them even added so you could just type in or get a list of things. You'd select which ingredients do I have, and they would tell you all the drinks that could be made with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. mixology. Yeah. There was a, quite a few of them back in the Coca days. I remember some were on, like, Chromaset and T&D. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, T&D. <laughs> so what are your guys' uh, thoughts about uh, Rainbow's uh, collection every month that come out? Some of it was pretty rudimentary, and... I mean, were there some stars in, throughout the time that it was produced? Oh, yeah, produced? yeah. Rain- Rainbow tried to cover the entire audience, and they a lot of beginners used Rainbow. I mean, there were some other magazines that got a bit more technical. Color Computer News it was always my favorite because it was much more technical than Rainbow. It wasn't as well-written, wasn't well-produced. But they had, you know, they had machine language games. They'd give you the source code listing, or they'd have the source code for the William Tell Overture and four-part harmony. Whereas Rainbow had a lot of stuff for beginners and some advanced stuff, too. I mean, there was some... Games that had little ML routines and stuff too. Hot Cocoa did the same, but it was meant more for the mass market Cocoa. So it was covering beginners through experts. And and to be honest, I used it the most for advertisers because that was the place all the advertisers went. So if you want to see what new was coming out, Rainbow was the place to go. Yeah, I remember yeah. they took one of my listings and put it in the magazine for people to type in, and I get a phone call because for some idiot reason, in there it said. Do not publish phone number. <laughs> they didn't see the not, I guess. But I get this phone call, and he says, it's not going to work. I go, what? Well, I looked it over, uh, and it's not going to work. And I'm kind of going, did you try? No. In this one line, in this, you used uh, this character instead of this character. I go, yes, but it'll still work. No. In the according to the book on the color computer, that will not work. I'm going. The book on the color computer shows you a way to do it, not the only way to do it. I'm going. Okay, this is what I'm going to get. And I did get about another thirty or forty phone calls from people that complained. No, the program won't work. <laughs> was Hot Cocoa? Was that a very big magazine? Define what do you mean by big? Like big circulation, big in physical page size, or no, 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 big in circulation, because it lasted a while too, didn't it? Not. Uh, it started in '83 and went till about '86, I think. I think it stopped before the Coco Three came out. Uh, I have some issues of it. Yeah. 
Uh oh, we're in trouble, guys. We have Stevie Stro who is joining the call. Uh oh. <laughs> Here comes Mummy to braid us for you know going off the rails. <laughs> He's coming in right when we're already in the show. <laughs> hey, how's it going, eh? <laughs> we're just we're just about ready. We beat this to death now. <laughs> uh, have you beat it? Have you beat it to death? Getting, getting close. Getting very close to it. Yep. <laughs> well, I think well, I think I think we should name this one the. We should name this episode the George Clooney episode, the one that ruined the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the Star Wars reboot. You know, Charger. That's been a, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, been pretty good, guys. It's been nice to be a fly on the wall and troll for once. <laughs> oh, you were trolling? Oh, yeah. I thought you were being honest. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think hey. he's going to have a, a better appreciation seeing an episode done from the outside instead of the inside. Hey, Stevie, you want to hear my uh, uh, imitation of you? Uh-oh. There you go. Yeah, I'm having, I'm having, I don't know what, I'm, I must be in a bad Wi-Fi spot right now. There you go. <laughs> that is so eerily accurate. That is true. <laughs> I really got yeah. lost in translations because I'm in a I'm in a bad uh, Wi-Fi spot right now. Oh, well, let's do it again. Sure. Richard, yeah. try it again. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that pretty much summarizes this show. That was Jim Brain's entire segment right there. Oh. <laughs> At least what Steve remembers of the segment. <laughs> After he woke yeah. up from it, yeah. <laughs> Are your ACIAs um, sore? <laughs> yeah, I put a couple links out there too. When you guys, when Curtis, when you were showing off your clone site, because you and I had done a few showcases, like our Defender yeah. clone showcase. So I put that link out there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was a good topic. I mean, I can't wait for the replay because I haven't been able to stay completely focused on it. So yeah, I'll jump off. I'll jump and off. Plus I we... just wanted to say hi and thank you for doing it. Yeah, get thank back you, Steve. to yeah, get back to your family. I will, but it's coming. Up, it's coming up to everyone's favorite part of the show, though. You said you're you're getting ready to end it, right? All right. Yep, yeah. we're getting well, very we're, close. We're going to do Coco to... Talk after dark yet. <laughs> yeah, like that's going to happen. All right. Oh yes, it is. <laughs> thanks a lot, right, well, Steve. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks for doing it, man. Yeah, no anytime, anytime. Who was that man? I don't know. Some crazy guy. Steve Stroh as <laughs> S-T-R-O-H, right? Right? Isn't that him? <laughs> you, you, you get hecklers wherever you go. No video, <laughs> so we couldn't tell if he was smoking pot. So I'm going to do one more. <laughs> I don't think he's doing that at his grandma's place, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't know his grandma, do you? <laughs> nope, nope. Oh, he said, sorry, fell asleep. Did you say something, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, I, just, do you I think... just said you get hecklers wherever you go. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, did we cover your uh, questions thoroughly enough, or did we go off too much off tangent? Oh, no, we covered it. <laughs> it's all right there. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Well, actually, so we had two channels on the Coco, three or four. For the RFM. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, uh, um, 
before we go here, I'm going to do another commercial here. But uh, D. Bruce Moore, did you have any updates on your uh, Coco Forever? Uh, just working hard at it. Um, yeah, I was laying down some dialogue yesterday, and uh, it's coming. It's coming. I want to. I want to make sure I've got enough of it <clears throat> ready to roll before I release the first one. Because you know it would really suck if I released something and then there's a big, big gap between episodes. I don't. Really yeah, the darn, the darn real life stuff keeps getting in the way. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm trying <laughs> to. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that that doesn't happen, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's coming along, and uh, the the as it comes along, the I see extra little plot twists I can put in, and and uh, I think you guys, I think you guys are gonna like it. Cool, cool. Yeah. Can't wait to. I have a question for you, Bruce. Have you ever done anything like that before, like an episodic, like you do recording and stuff? But have you ever done like an episodic talk thing before? Or? Not an episodic. I've I've done a uh, I did a kids book thing, so multi voice. All that you know, sound effects and all that. So I've done on a small scale, but not something, you know, this big, you know. But uh, <clears throat> I think that the trick to doing it is you 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 write out the whole the whole thing first, the whole main idea first, and then you write the last episode word for word, mm-hmm. and then you know exactly where you're going. So there's not a whole lot of messing around to do in, in the meantime. And then hey, I had to go. And that trailer you got is yeah. uh, Volkswagen yours? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> it's mm. it's not there by accident. I'll I'll tell you that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And Ron, did you have a Ron's Garage this week? Just a little one. Okay. Let me uh, go ahead and do a little commercial here. We'll do Ron's Garage, garage and then we will wrap it up for this week. So I'll uh, run a couple here commercials in case you got to do uh, what, uh, what bio breaks, I think is what you guys call them. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. What if, knowing what I know now, I could go back in time, join Tandy Corporation, and change the course of history. Coco forever. How does it feel? I'm still believing. After these messages, It's a Radio Shack Merry Christmas. This year, I needed to give a real family pleaser. Honey, please help me with this budget. How about a new game, Dad? Please. And I found it. Radio Shack's Color Computer 2. On sale for just $99.95. It entertains, educates, manages. It's expandable and affordable. Now that really pleases me. The Color Computer 2. Sale price for Christmas. Only at Radio Shack. What's going on, guys? Stevie Stroh here, and I want to say thank you so much for being part of this adventure with us. It's been such a great experience in doing Coco Talk every week, and the support we get is just amazing. And so the fact that you watch and listen is all the reward that we need. However, if you would like to become a patron of the show and offer some financial assistance towards the production and hosting costs of the show, we do have a Patreon site available for that, and you can reach that by going to our website at cocotalk.com. 
Live and clicking on the Patreon link. But just do us a favor and watch and listen to the show. We now return you to Cocoa Talk. All right, we are now back, and we will now go ahead and get ready for Ron's Garage. Ron, kick it away. Okay. Well, what I have basically is uh, a deep dig into my garage, and I came across this Tandy 4100 Professional 46 <laughs> computer and uh, booted up to uh, floppy. It has uh, lost its memory. The uh, battery went dead. I took it all apart and... Uh, Looked at the battery, and it's a non-standard little button battery thing. I tried to put a piece of um, tin foil in there and jam a, a larger one in there, but it didn't stay, and it didn't work. So I have to go back in there with the proper battery. Anyway, I opened it up, and there is no fan on the processor, as you can see here. It's just a uh, just a uh, CPU in there with a little thing on it and um, yeah and it has a little bit of memory in there probably one megabyte or something anyway there's a windows millennium startup <laughs> it booted to uh the dos prompt and um i was thinking this would probably be a neat case to repack in it says tandy on it i do not remember this computer at all no. Was it one of their last was it one of the last ones they did? Must be. It's a forty one hundred MT professional series. It's yeah, a really nice case. Yeah. yeah. So it has a um uh sound card in it and uh modem. And that's pretty much it. Well the sound it's not a sound card, it's a uh, hard drive card, you know. Uh, um mm -hmm. IDE card and a creative CD 1x I think maybe 2x or something but anyway that's my find in Ron's garage and the other thing I've been doing in my garage is I hooked up my um, my uh, dragon to uh, I'm not gonna there sorry <laughs> hooked up my dragon to uh, um, SDC, and uh, I was able to secure some uh, programs, and then I went ahead and started uh, to figure out the DOS, and I uh, had a sheet here that I had printed out, which has uh, some of the DOS commands, and I must say, it's just a little bit archaic. Some of the commands, are they're nothing like... Uh, this has what's called an extension for um, DOS plus 5, DOS plus 5.0. And it, a DIR is SDIR. There's, um, you have to mount things. It's, it's like a whole new game. Uh, I got so far as to put a, a, a v, VDK as the uh, convention for uh, DSK. And I stuck it in there, and I got it in the second drive, and uh, I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to do a directory on it and then run one of the programs. So I just stopped where I was at, 
shut it down, set the switches again back to Coco, and went back in the <laughs> in the house from the garage and thought, yeah, I'm going to have to get a whole bunch of information on how to um, and actually review it and figure out how to to do the syntax because it's just completely different than a Coco. Yeah, that's kind of funny because I mean the Dragon's uh, color basic, extended basic ROMs are pretty well identical to Coco, you know, aside from keyboard mapping and stuff because of the hardware differences. But their their DOS is completely different. It's weird. It's actually it's actually easier to run OS nine for me on a Dragon or a Virtual Dragon because at least the OS nine is the same. <laughs> the thing the thing I was uh, interested in it was uh, when I got my um, computer from the digital place, I opened it up and I didn't see a manual in it. I saw a piece of paper. They said some interesting things to say, but there was no manual like for for um, basic. There was, you know, didn't have one. And then um, I suppose back in the day they didn't really have a disk drive that you can buy for it with a controller in the box like we had. Nope, they did. Well, it wasn't. I, I don't common. think it. Yeah, it wasn't as common as as ours. No, and and there probably was not a uh, manual included in that either. Maybe, huh? Uh, I, I think know. there was, but maybe Tantano didn't get them when they got them up here in yeah. North America. So I'm, I'm thinking, uh, man, a newbie going into a, a dragon really has to start from f zero, you know, and figure out how to actually work the thing. So that's what I'm going to do is do some research and figure out how to get it going. Once I do, maybe I'll make a little video and post it and you can see what I've done, but... It's hard for an old guy to learn new stuff. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, the dragon is a is a different uh, computer altogether. I mean, I've had some struggles as well, so I haven't had a chance to do as much as I would like with it. But uh, yeah, hopefully we'll find some more stuff. And I think you were asking the question: Was there a ultra SDC image like it is for the uh, for the Coco, right? Yeah. No, and I don't. I do not know the answer to that question. Does anybody else know? Nope. Nope. No, I, I know some people, like there's the Dragon Archive site that has a ton of stuff, but I don't know if they have like a master with everything Brent, all collated Brent together. Donahue had downloaded a whole bunch of uh, stuff that were VH, VDKs, and um, I was able to get what he had. And uh, the thing was the, the file names were too long, and they had a little arrow in there. And yeah, the little the arrow isn't isn't reproduced. Yeah, I can't reproduce it. They have to do what you have to do is go and rename all the hundreds of uh, programs there are. I think if you do a shift, and I can't remember which arrow it is. Is it shift down arrow or shift right arrow? I or something? I think you can get it, but at least yeah. on the Coco, I don't know about the Dragon. Well, the thing is, basically, if you want to, the, the other thing is, I wanted to have a, a, like a an explorer come up. And it has a VD, VDK for that, but um, again, I wasn't able to open it up and see in it so that I could run something because I didn't know the syntax. So, yeah, I suppose I'll have that up and going <laughs> later. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> a steep right, learning right. curve if you're used to the Coco. And it's, yeah, it's DOS. Yeah, I always, yeah. always want to do the old commands because you're sitting there at a keyboard and, and you just want to start doing what you've always done, but it doesn't work. So you stare at stare at the screen, thinking to yourself, yeah. "SNR." <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. 
Yeah, it's like learning a whole new system. I've sure. I've learned that myself, and there's not much documentation out there for it that I've that I've been able to find. So, well, somebody did point me to a PDF section of their archives that has um, they have a DOS PDF, but I haven't looked at it yet. Cool. So, so we'll have a follow up once you learn the uh, syntax. Yeah, I'm sure we'll probably be getting some people to chime in here in the next uh, week, and that might be able to help us out on that. So, yeah, Kieran and a few of the others, Tormod, could help with it. Did Grant? Did you ever get your unboxing video done for your dragon? I never did see it. If you did, but no, no, unfortunately, I have not. And in fact, uh, actually, I uh, purchased a uh, tripod, so I'm going to probably be doing it here in the next uh, couple weeks here after my surgery. So, okay. All right. Um, well, have we beat this one to death yet? I'm sorry, David. Did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say something to run. Uh, from what yeah. little I've played, at least with Xroar, uh, in Dragon uh, 64 mode um, and with the uh, uh, Dragon DOS, um, there, the Dragon DOS has a few differences. Um, instead of it being disk any, it's disk in it. Um, <laughs> And the fact that uh, the reason why the disc basic for the Dragon is different is they weren't restricted by Tandy for that. And they actually put a lot of features that would have been comparable to Nitrous 9 for how it could access discs. Mm -hmm. uh, because um, on Dragon DOS, you could format 35 track was the norm, but you could do 40 track. You could do 80-track single-sided, and you could do 80-track double-sided. And that's with the, the DOS they had. The right, DOS. the Dragon DOS, yes. Mm -hmm. And that was something you just format it, and the information was encoded into, I don't know if it was in the directory structure, the, the their allocation table, or where the data was stored. But basically, it put on the disk structure how big the disk was that you formatted. So therefore, you could... You know, it was much more flexible than um, what Tandy had, Robust. and yeah. and uns and unlike Disk Basic and Color Basic, where you had load them and load and save them and save, save and load them, well, save them and load them was actually non-existent. It was save and load. Those would both save binary and basic, or load binary and basic with the same command. So the software knew the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the base. Yeah, the basic could tell mm -hmm. which, which which file you was doing. So there was no reason to memorize two separate commands to load machine language or basic programs. So that was I would, handy. I would seriously like to. Uh, burn a ROMs and put it in a controller I have and, uh, you know, put a couple of drives together and uh, take some of these uh, and make discs just to have them, you know. It'd be interesting to do. The whole process of doing it's fun, you know, to actually have made a disc when you have yeah. one. Yeah. Cool, cool. So, well, guys, have we, uh, have we beat this one to death? Is the uh, Titanic sinking at this point? Well, David snuck his floppy talk in just now, so I th yeah, I think we're done now. <laughs> oh, right. oh, oh, did you want to go into disk dis format procedures? Oh, God, no, please, please. My <laughs> head would definitely explode on that one. 
Oh, you don't want uh, gap information, huh? <laughs> drive wire. All right. <laughs> drive wire, drive wire, <laughs> TTL, RS-232. <laughs> yeah. All right, the horse is long pin pulverized now. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we'll be going through our closing thoughts here, but I just want to thank uh, Stevie for giving me the opportunity to fill in for him this week. He sh- should be back next weekend. Uh, so that lazy we'll bum. Back. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll be going back to him uh, talking every 30 seconds and... Uh, <laughs> Interrupting everyone and yeah, yeah. yep, and, and his bad jokes and um, yeah. you know, you know how that goes. Uh, also, <laughs> I, I want to thank thank uh, Curtis uh, uh, Boyle uh, for also helping out too as well. So thank you, Curtis. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm just a space filler. I just you know use big words to watch Steve's head explode. So <laughs> yay, yay, Curtis! Yay, Curtis! Well done. I uh, want to thank everybody else who joined us earlier today. Um, I'm sorry, you're going to have to help me here, Mark. What was your friend's name again? Oh, uh, Thomas Cherry Holmes. Thank you, thank you. And also Jim Brain and uh, Richard Lorbieski. Uh, thank you for also joining. I'm sure I'm forgetting some other people as well. Thanks, thanks for trolling you too. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, and thanks, Steve, for coming in and trolling everybody and, and checking in on us and so forth. Um, and also thanks to everybody who uh, came into the chat. Uh, we had a few people in there today as well. Rick Adams was in there. Um, Bruce was in there. Uh, Mikey in 60IL. I don't know who that is. Um, but, uh, other than that, that's pretty much it. D- uh, Disney Saint fans was in there. And um, ah, James Jones. So, but yeah, thanks for everybody who was in the chat today as well. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, Ron, you're up. We still have the uh, last half hour in credits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love so much. <laughs> well, um, you know, Coco Fest is over, and I go and look through the uh, pictures, and I see some interesting things that I wasn't able to see when I was going by by looking at the pictures, and that's kind of cool. So, <laughs> yeah. And what uh, what site's that at? Um, it's on Facebook, right? Yeah. There's. Um, I think Stevie has uh, the 2018 Coco Fest uh, list of pictures. Yeah, the Facebook page. Yeah, I contributed a lot to them. Yeah. I contributed cool. one because I forgot to take pictures the whole time. I was too busy yakking. <laughs> but you should go through and look one by one and uh, actually see what's on there. There's a whole lot of neat information there that's just, you just look and see it. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about Tom C. He was also in the chat, too. And James Jones. James Jones. Formerly James Jones. All right. Not and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, Mark was in there briefly at the beginning. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Mark Overholzer, any closing thoughts for this week? Um, well, Coco Fest was a blast. Glad to meet everybody, and glad we're kind of getting back to normal, I guess, kind of. And I'm excited about uh, Irata Online and uh, where it can possibly go for us. And uh, I'm glad to be here, and I think it's been another good show. Yeah, and that actually might be a good uh, idea for Stevie to do a uh, maybe an interview with uh, with him mm-hmm. and see if we uh, you know, get some more... Uh, interest into the uh, project yeah so cool thanks again for uh, having them come on i appreciate it thank you nick morantis you're up any closing thoughts oh no no i see you successfully run another three-hour show so (laughs) 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 no it's good (laughs) we we do Uh, what we can for sleep aids for people that's all i can say that's true (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks a lot appreciate nick 
Steve O'York, any closing thoughts? Well, just uh, what Dave was talking about earlier with Discord. Uh, if you kind of uh, have withdrawal issues from Cocoa Fest or you want to get an idea of what we do at the Cocoa Fest, uh, we do a lot of discussions late at night on Discord. Yes, yes, we do. And sometimes those things will go on to the wee hours of the morning. Thanks, David Ladd. <laughs> <laughs> D. Bruce Moore, any uh, closing thoughts from you, sir? I As I just catch it. <laughs> Sorry oh, about that. I appreciate the help I got to on Discord last night with my uh, S Coco STC. Um, I, I can officially now run a game and then type the exp command and it goes back into the to the menu. And uh, it was not working before. And uh, I think Grant wasn't that you who helped me sort that out? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. that was something I learned at uh, Coco Fest and also from David Ladd's uh, video that uh, him and Stevie did. Well, there's because the I, I, I was like you. I didn't know that existed either. <laughs> there's there's the community at work. Yeah, it's fabulous. Great, great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today. Appreciate it. David Ladd, you are now up. Any closing thoughts? Yes. I'm glad everybody showed up to Coco Fest. Um, I am happy for the community that has joined uh, Discord so far to hang out and discuss projects, tips, tricks, and useful information, or just sit around and just gab about everything else. You know, it's a great time, and hope to continue. <laughs> and okay, that's enough. See you on the flip side. <laughs> <laughs> Nick! <laughs> Don't make me come down there and smack you. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like Coco Man is getting trolled by Stevie in the uh, chat. So, Coco Man, it's up to you now. It's, any closing thoughts or, or any anything closing you want to say to thoughts? And Stevie, yes. Pummel him. Pummel him. Stevie's still jealous. We know he's still jealous. And uh, I actually tried to let that joke die, but he's, uh, he's carrying the torch, and that's fine. But. Uh, Stevie, level my... one Strawbridge. We know who the bigger man is. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, this uh, might but... become the best Coco talk ever, you know? <laughs> no, but uh, just, uh, you know, I uh, did some work. I have a, I have a SCART cable that's uh, up and up testing right now, and I got another one, uh, one another one on the bench here right now. And uh, just, uh, you, know, um, you're, uh, you know, you can get your switcheroo at uh, cocoman.biz. Cool, cool. Yep, and Stevie needs to get off his uh, lazy butt and get you added to the sponsor page, too. <clears throat> Steve, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then uh, finally, L. Curtis Boyle, the co-host with me th this afternoon. Well, thanks for letting me co-host and, and make up stuff. I mean, report on stuff as we went along. Um, yeah, Coco Fest was great. It was a nice meeting people. I was going to mention uh, Mikey, actually. he's He was at the fest, and uh, he's quite active on Discord, too. He's been helping Brett with Fusic stuff, and he's been helping with the CMOC compiler and a bunch of other things, too. So um, just want to give him a bit of a shout-out since he was in chat and wasn't able to make the live show. Uh, thanks for Stevie for uh, substitute trolling when, when Jim and uh, Richard weren't available, like right now. Um, it was great. <laughs> it was wonderful. Watching Stevie troll Jim. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that well, was good. I have to. <laughs> the most impressive part, I think, for Steve was when he trolled Jim live at the show. That one bit there, and actually got oh, yeah. Jim to Jim to laugh out loud at that one. That was that was priceless. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. So, 
but yeah, I mean, I, it, I have the same problem everybody else does. I've just not enough time, too many projects. I've been working on the ease of use stuff. I've been making notes for stuff for the level one upgrades I want to do and some other general nitrous nine stuff I want to do. This new project that we had our guest on earlier today for doing a terminal program that does, you know, graphics and stuff that's compatible with a bunch of other computers rather than just OS 9. That sounds really intriguing. I wish I had time to do it myself. Hopefully somebody else can pick that up. Um, all the new well, hardware and stuff. Thank you for everything time. you're doing for uh, Alpha Whatever number oh, we're on four, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I got a whole job. list of, I got documents all over the place of plans for upgrades to G Shell and upgrades to Nitrous 9 itself and upgrades to Base 9 Run B. So I got a ton of stuff and I just keep jumping back and forth. So hopefully it'll well, be really good let once us it's all know done. When you, when you get a bunch done and you shoot out another edition. Yeah, I like that. This last one here, the Alpha Three, was kind of rushed just to get it out in time for the festo, and I, I was busy with work because I have two seasonal periods of work that are quite busy, so I didn't get as much done. And uh, I've got a little bit of a break right now where it's not too busy, so I'm hoping to crank some stuff out. But uh, cool. I, I don't want to just release them on a fixed time schedule because that means twice a year it's going to be like almost nothing has been done on it, and then you know over stuff like Christmas where I'm not busy at all, then I'll have more time to get to it. So. I'll try to do it when you know, I get a certain number of features added as opposed to trying to do it on a fixed time schedule. Is the version 3 out? Have, have yep. you released the... Oh, okay. Yeah, you should have got the email because you're on the list. So. Mm, yeah, okay. It's on the FTP Steve. already, so come grab it. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. Curtis is busy, as Steve says. <laughs> well, the, the, the email was upside down. That was the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess this will be for uh, Jim Brain's favorite part of the show now. We'll go ahead and do the 15-minute out outro. <laughs> By the way, uh, Stevie, you're fired. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Here comes the uh, outro. Thank you for watching Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things Coco Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. If you love the color computer like we do, then visit imacoconut.com for all your color computer needs. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, then visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash OGStevieStrow. Coco Talk would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. Thanks go to Curtis Boyle, David Ladd, Mark Overholzer, Grant Leedy, Bruce Moore, Rick Adams, Rom Delvaux, Richard Lorbieski, Jim Brain, Nick Marentis, Karen Anscombe, Simon Jonason, Wayne Campbell, Steve Batson, Brian Joyce, John Strong, and Barry Nelson. Special thanks to Steve Bjork for production suggestions and Brian Joyce for our Best of 2017 episode. Please help support the Coco community by visiting some of its contributors. The Coco Crew Podcast at cococrew.org. Glenside Color Computer Club, host of Coco Fest at glensideccc.com. Jim Brain and Retro Innovations at go, the number four, retro.com. Tandy Assembly at TandyAssembly.com. Cloud9 Technologies at Cloud, the number 9, tech.com. Boyson Technologies at B-O-Y-S-O-N, tech.com.
there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care, guys. Thanks for watching. See you guys next week. Later, all. Bye, Bye. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye. All right, we are now off the air. Now we are off the rails. You know, I should have asked about those bartending programs if you can add drinks to them, like a, like a David Ladd. Yes, yes, you can. Oh, yep. so we can add the half water, half diet, Dr. Pepper. All right. All right. You have a jolt, really? York. Really? Really? Well, Curtis, you were right. We got it. We it had very little news, but we made a three-hour and ten-minute show out of it. <laughs> well, one segment was an hour. Well, one segment was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we kind of let Jim do that because he doesn't get right. joined very often. So. Well, I, I, I did kind of put. To I tried too. to put warnings into the uh, chat on Skype. It wouldn't send out the damn messages. Really. Yeah. Really? That's weird. I did a half hour warning, a 45 minute warning, <laughs> and message not a sent. A David Ladd warning. I would probably wait. let that one go through, but it wouldn't send out the ones on Jim. I think he probably hacked me. The funny thing was, I think our highest live viewership was actually during Jim's segment, so I think a lot of people were interested in, in getting some of the technical oh. details. It was. We yeah, were up at 25 to 30, and it dropped at 20 before and after. So, <laughs> so we yeah. need to have tech in every issue now. No, I just think it's it's kind of like a catch-up episode for the tech heads out there. Is that, oh, you guys are actually going to do some tech talk. Well, then I'm going to stick around for it. Yeah. Yes, there is a what they, he has now called the uh, post-credits now, too. So <laughs> here's that. Good morning. It's the last day of Coco Fest. We're excited to be here, even on this last day. And it's uh, sad in a way, but it's happy in another way that we're only 365 days from the next one. <laughs> so uh, glad to have met Stevie Stroh in the flesh, and uh, hope to meet a lot more of you next time. But until then, let's have fun. Um, hi, I'm David Ladd. Thank you for watching Stevie Stroh. Good morning, Coco Land. This is Brian Schubring with Music Man here at the Coco Fest. Having fun, fixing issues, and making things roll, and making lots of sound. Have a great day, guys. Start over. Let's take it from the top. This time with feeling. Hi there, this is Mark Overholzer, and you're watching Coco Talk, the world's leading weekly talk show where you can join in. Hey, come watch us and see what's happening in the world of Coco. And don't miss next year's Coco Fest. Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Hi, this is Max Jackson, live from Coco Fest. And you listen to the real game, Steve Stroh. Hi, this is Rick Adams, and I'm the author of uh, Temple of Brom, Shanghai, and now Bomb Threat, and you're listening to Steve Stroh on Coco Talk. Hi, this is Sean Wheatley, and you're listening to Coco Talk with the original gamer, Stevie Stroh. Hi, I'm Bruce Moore, and this is. Jacob Moore, gotcha. And we are the Forest of Doom guys, and the Coco Forever guys, and we are Coco Fest, and we love Stevie Stroh. Hi, this is Curtis Boyle, part of the uh, Coco Talk crew of people, and a lot of us are here down at the Coco Fest, having a great time. It's the second day, and we're just about done, so you guys have to come out next year. Hello, I'm David Ladd. Thank you for watching Coco Talk, the world's leading live Coco Talk show. Something like that. You want to do it over? You want to do, you want to yeah, do over? That's right. All right. The world's leading weekly Coco Talk show.
Yeah, something like that. Yeah. All, right. All right, we're rolling. You say whatever you want yeah, to say, I'm David. Right, I want to go wrong. And it's got three. <laughs> <laughs> I keep making faces at Yeah, I can't think of anything. How about, hi, this it's is David Lab. day at Coco Fest. How sad are you? Or happy are you? I don't know. I'm just tired. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Marco Rolzer and you're watching Coco Talk. They should world sweetie. Weekly candy computer. <laughs> Thank you, David Lad. <laughs> now get back up there for one second. Oh jeez. What? What? Let's, what? let's get some drive wire, TTL, no. ESP. No, we don't need any drive wire or TTL. <laughs> Hi, it's Ron Dovo, Timberman, and this is Coco Talk. What are you still doing here? It's over. Eight slot MPI, you know, floppy drive, Coco SDC, um, sound speech pack, orchestra 90, RS-232 pack, modem pack, uh, super IDE.